straight up red action. From Hangover Country, this is Hell This Week's Live. For our show is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now, and podcasting its entirely, entirety shortly after at thisishell.com, as well as broadcasting an abbreviated one-hour versions on Chicago's South Side, on Lumpin' Radio. And on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, also on Sunday mornings. During this week's This Is Hell, anyone who tells you France's yellow vest movement is about fuel taxes is wrong. Very, very, very wrong. We'll have a very, very difficult talk about rape. We'll discuss the escalating human and financial cost of war and what that means and how that means more death and destruction. We'll explain how pistachios might lead us to war with Iran. We'll have a very difficult talk about suicide. And of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And full disclosure, I will be fully disclosing myself. Our first guest this week will be talking to us live from Paris. Journalist Cole Stangler wrote last month's Jacobin article, Yellow Vests Against the President of the Rich. And this month's article at The Nation, What's really behind France's yellow vest protest? You may have heard me blurt out something recently on how the New York Times refuses to discuss matters of class. And that was on display in the reporting of the yellow vest movement in France. The Times reported the uprising as one of those opposing, uh, one side opposing climate change against those who oppose taxes that are meant to be used to fight climate change. The only thing disproving that stupid idea is that the person whose social media post started the Yellow Vest movement said from the very beginning, this had nothing to do with climate change or rising fuel taxes, but fair taxes. It's about giving huge tax cuts to the wealthiest while raising living costs on the rest of France. We'll find out what the Yellow Vest movement is all about when we talk to Cole, who is a former staff writer at International Business Times and In These Times. You can find out more about Cole at colestangler.com. In this week's second hour of This Is Hell, our guest is writer and organizer Sohalia Abdullali. She is author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Sohalia's January 2013 op-ed in the New York Times, I Was Wounded, My Honor Wasn't, broke readership records. That was an op-ed that she had done about her own experience of rape. That op-ed made Sohalia, as they were calling her, India's only rape victim to survive and led to her being identified as just the rape victim. Sohalia's record-breaking New York Times op-ed was in response to a 30-plus-year-old essay of Sohalia's from the 1980s being unearthed and shared online in 2012. 
that went viral. This all happened in the wake of the worldwide uproar weeks earlier over the gang rape and murder on a bus in India of Jyoti Singh. Sohalia argues that for us to do something about what she sees as a vast international conspiracy where we are all culpable in the silence around rape, we must talk about rape. We'll find out what you do and don't say when we talk about rape. When we speak with Sahalia, who is author of the 1998 best-selling novel, The Mad Woman of Jogar, she is also author of another novel, 2010's Year of the Tiger. Sohalia is also author of a children's book series, Rang Bibi and Langra. Sohalia coordinated the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, worked on communication strategy and materials with clients including Oxfam, the World Health Organization, the UN Development Program, Sesame Workshop International, and United We Dream. You can find out more about Sohalia at SohaliaLink.com S-O-H-A-L-I-A I'm sorry, Sohalia Inc. SohaliaInc.com Our first guest in our third hour is political scientist Nita C. Crawford, co-director of the Eisenhower Study Group, Costs of War Study, including her two most recent reports, Human Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars and United States Budgetary Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars through fiscal year 2019. The costs of war in human lives and in terms of the economy have grown to uncontrollable levels. At least a quarter to a half million people have directly died, died directly from post-9-11 U.S. wars. And that doesn't count a lot of the fighting happening right now that are still the direct outcome of America's global war on terror. So how can we afford this ongoing world war the U.S. is waging? That's the thing. We can't afford these ongoing wars, and we never could. That's why that moron, President George W. Bush, launched a couple of unnecessary wars on credit. In other words, we'll be paying off the interest on these lies for a very long time. Well, we won't. Our kids and grandkids will. But who cares? We'll be long dead while they suffer. We'll find out the real costs of war when we talk to Nita, who is a professor of political science and department chair at Boston University. Following Nita in our third hour, we'll have the return of investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who has been working on a new movie, Pistachio Wars, killing America or sorry, killing California for a snack food. And he needs your help with his movie through Kickstarter. Pistachio Wars, according to Yasha, promises to be a groundbreaking documentary about Beverly Hills billionaires, marketing bandits, water privatization, and war with Iran. Did you ever see the classic Roman Polanski movie Chinatown? Yasha's real-life story is a lot like that fictional movie starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. It turns out that a few of the earliest Californians put down stakes on huge swaths of land, took over the local media, convinced the Los Angeles public that there was a water crisis, got the suckers to pay for aqueducts, and and that all led to their massive fiefdoms, perfectly situated perfectly situated between the north and the south of the state, cutting it in half and forcing all commerce to go through their lands. They then told California that if they wanted any of the water, which they owned according to the state constitution, the public did according to the state constitution, but no more in some clever trickery, they would have to buy it from California's ruling oligarchs. Meanwhile, the oligarchs grow things like pistachios and put pressure on their friends in politics to push for harsher sanctions, even with war against Iran so they don't have any pistachio competition. Yes, these people are that immoral, unethical, and just plain lousy. We'll get the skinny on California's water politics and how they can lead to war with Iran when we have the return of Yasha Levin. This is Yasha's fourth appearance 
on thisishell.com. We'll start the fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by hearing from psychologist and award-winning science writer Jesse Baring, author of Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. There's a lot we don't know about suicide, and often what we do know is wrong. Suicide is necessarily the result of depression, and it can creep up on, isn't necessarily the result of depression, and it can keep creep up on us at any moment moment as we can suddenly feel out of place in society and the crushing feeling of shame can mislead us into thinking the world and everybody in it would be better off without us the problem is when you're suicidal that's the worst time to be making decisions as important as committing suicide we'll hear jesse's struggle with suicide and what he learned about suicide along the way jesse is a research psychologist and director of the center for science communication at the university of otago otago in dundee new zealand We'll wrap up this week's hell the way we wrap up most editions of This Is Hell. And that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff sees the glass as entirely full. Go figure. All that stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's uh, and what is happening on next week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's episode, the final episode of This Is Hell for 2018. And throughout this week's This Is Hell, I will be revealing the my favorite 18 books that we featured here on This Is Hell in 2018. Why 18 books? Because it's 2018? Guess again. It's because I was too spineless to make the list any shorter. In fact, I'm going to reveal the first book on the list right now. Keep in mind, this list is not in any order, but the order of appearance by the authors... Our first book on the list was featured on This Is Hell back in January, and it's Johan Hari's Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. From Johan's book, I learned that it's not your fault or my fault that we're all so freaking depressed. It's neoliberalism's fault. If you're depressed and don't know why, read Johan's Lost Connections, because you being bummed, it ain't your fault. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. That's the first of our 18 favorite books that we featured on This Is Hell this year. You can find the entire list right now at thisishell.com. Producing this week's This Is Hell are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Leo, what's new by you? Oh, hey, Chuck. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was uh, thrown by you, throwing to me first. Um, It's all good. Oh, that's good to hear. Thanks for asking. Certainly. (laughs) Alex, what's new by you? Do you have any more, anything else to add to that? Uh, sorry, we're sharing a pair of headphones. Uh, how long after a U.S. president dies, does uh, in the official flag code of the United States, does Burger King have to take down their giant 50-foot flag that's at half-mast? Or put it back up to full-mast? There is an extra set of headphones in here. I just don't have a jack for it, so if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah come by. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and one of those two goofs has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is chlorella, not cholera, chlorella. Chlorella. Uh, Although when you get later to it, it sounds a lot like cholera. I went uh, with a woman named chlorella once. According to an article at organicauthority.com. Chuck, what sites are you on now? (laughs) Chlorella is a superfood that's especially effective in the removal of pollutants from the body, supporting their detoxification from the body, which includes alcohol. Rumor has it chlorella may even stop a hangover before it starts. Now, Now... 
try Now Foods' Chlorella 1000 milligram tablets. Warning, the most common side effects include diarrhea, nausea, gas, in parentheses flatulence, thanks. <laughs> I like that parenthetically there. Uh, green discoloration of the stool, <laughs> and stomach cramping, especially in the two weeks of use. Chlorella can cause two weeks of use for a hangout. Damn. Chlorella can cause skin to become extra sensitive to the sun, wear sunblock outside, especially if you are light skinned. Chlorella is possibly in all caps, safe for pregnant women and those breastfeeding. Do not use chlorella if you are allergic to mold or are sensitive to iodine. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure chlorella. Please see your physician before taking chlorella and take chlorella at your own risk. <laughs> what the hell? Pink stools? You mean you just like sit on a chair and all of a sudden they're pink? That makes no sense to me. I don't understand what that means. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. Please. For God's sake, prove us wrong. This is hell. This show can really, really screw with my head. It can really do a number on me. Every week trying to find the most hellish stories, stories so grim that the rest of the news media refuses to discuss them. Putting myself through that week after week can be a real grind. It can really have an intense impact on my psyche. That said... As a journalist, I believe in full disclosure, so you can best understand the perspective of the host of this stupid radio show, and luckily I, and luckily I fully disclose myself each week here on air, so all I have to do is go back through the monologues I delivered this year to reveal who I really am to you, our listening audience. A few years ago, I did a kind of fact-finding tour where I asked a bunch of people, all of whom I consider confidants, and who also listen to the show and who know me well enough that they can say to me whatever they want. I asked them about their thoughts on the radio show. I talked to marketing directors and strategists. I talked to hedge fund managers and accountants. I talked to website developers, webmasters, program pra programmers, and data managers. I talked to editors and librarians, biologists and bartenders, journalists and chefs. I talked to writers and lawyers, drug dealers, carpenters, and tradesmen of all sorts. I talked to people whose jobs I, I don't even understand, but damn, they are rich. I, t I talked to all of them and many more and got their advice on the future of the show. And one thing kept coming up, one thing that I absolutely hated. Within the content of the show, all these people wanted more of something. What they wanted more of was disgusting to me because they wanted more of someone I absolutely hate they wanted more of me and that sucks because i figure listeners get enough of me during the questions and the interstitial stuff that they don't need any more of me besides the whole point of the show is that i am not the expert our listeners are here for the same reason i'm here and that's to learn from our guests nonetheless a couple years ago i heeded my advisor's advice and started doing an opening monologue like this one. Now, every year at the six-month halfway point of the year and at the end of this year, which will be next week, I do a review of what we have learned on every episode over that half-year span. Next week, I'll be telling you everything we learned from July to, well, to next week. Alex will actually be sharing my recap of the first six months of this year on This Is Hell on social media this week, so be looking for that. But now, for the very first time, let's see how much damage interviewing guests on only the most hellish of topics has done this year to me. Let's reveal and disclose 
everything we found out about your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host in the last 12 months so you can more fully comprehend my idiocy. I mean, for full journalistic disclosure. This year, I fully disclose that I'm really not a journalist, but I am an unwilling participant and member of the patriarchy. I'm confident old people are and continue to ruin everything. I am death and it's all my fault. Or maybe it's not our fault at all. Maybe it's theirs. I've been radicalized and that is all your fault. This year I fully disclosed that we need to end our indifference to the world's suffering. I'm really, really fed up with all this indifference. In in fact, I'm kind of sick of it. I'm done with this indifference. Also, I think it's important to defend our right to privacy, even though most of us don't. And I'm confused as to why in an alleged democracy we have a word for citizen and a separate word for activist. And why, if we live in an alleged democracy, we don't defend our right to privacy. In 2018, I fully disclosed that I went to blind rehab across the street from an insane asylum. I also revealed that it's clear to me that racists are idiots, that disruption is very destructive and very not cool, and our two major political parties in the U.S. have no values. During monologues this year, I told you how, like you, I live in my own universe and that we're all living a lie. I explained that if I don't like it here, I really should leave, but sadly you can never ever get away from it all, even on vacation where the military industrial complex kept interrupting my summer holiday. This year I disclosed that I was making minimum wage when a genius idiot screwed up my back while on the job, that I've been really sick and I have a very sick sense of humor, and that I believe convenience is killing us all. Capitalism institutionalizes dishonesty, and that I'm a really bad capitalist. Seriously, I'm really not good at capitalism at all. This year, I described how it became apparent to me that the news media has fallen victim to the Stockholm Syndrome, and they now sympathize with their corrupt captors, their corrupt corporate captors, and that the media views being held responsible for lies they spread that cause violence. They view that as just being rude. In 2018, I also came to the realization that everything is a false flag operation, that the Olympics are way, way too Nazi, and I was made aware that people far smarter than me really don't think this is hell. Finally, this year, I disclosed that I am definitely not America's leading intellectual, that the holidays always fall short when it comes to making me happy, and I really, really really desperately want everyone to please exit from the rear of the bus. And that's why, for me, full disclosure, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we are beautiful? What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us Actually, it's, you are beautiful. That's what those signs say all over town. Our replies get read on air during the, I believe it's the fourth hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we are featuring during the fourth hour of the show. Jesse Baring's Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Again, the question from Mel is, 
What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the fourth hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won Jesse's book. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, what the Yellow Vest movement is really all about. A difficult conversation on rape and why our conversations on rape are so difficult. The untold costs of the post-9-11 wars in blood and treasure. How California's water politics can lead to war with Iran. A potentially even more difficult conversation on suicide. During a moment of truth, Jeff sees the glass as entirely full. All that stuff, plus we'll reveal some more of our best books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. We'll have rotten history. Listener feedback. Alex will tell us what he's been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been up to on Patreon. Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and for sharing the show online. And, of course, we'll tell you what's happening on next week's final episode of This Is Hell for the year 2018. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio, so clearly... And sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The Yellow Vest movement is likely not about what you think it's about. Think it's an, all an uprising against taxes and the taxes and the big bad state that it's full of people chanting Trump. You definitely have the Yellow Vest movement wrong. Here to help us get the Yellow Vest movement right, live from Paris, journalist Cole Stangler wrote last month's Jacobin article, Yellow Vests Against the President of the Rich, and this month's article at The Nation, What's Really Behind France's Yellow Vest Protest. Welcome to This Is Hell, Cole. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Cole is a former staff writer at International Business Times, and in these times you can follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Stangler, and you can find out more about Cole at ColeStangler.com on December 6th. So this is nearly three weeks after the beginning of the protest. The New York Times' Alyssa J. Rubin and Samini Sangupta, they reported, quote, the gas tax being protested as part of an effort started by France in 2014 to regularly raise the tax on fossil fuels to fight global climate change. The so-called yellow vest protests against the tax increase have become the biggest obstacle yet to such attempts to encourage conservation and alternative, alternative energy use. The protests point to the difficulties facing nearly all industrialized countries committed to pulling the world back from the cliff's edge of catastrophic climate change. France's cancellation of the tax increase this week in the aftermath of increasingly violent protests signaled the perils and political headwinds that governments worldwide may face as they try to wean their citizens from fossil fuels. Are the protests about the fight against climate change battling the fight against higher taxes? Is the Yellow Vest movement about taxes versus climate change? Well, you know, it, it, it's a complicated movement, but I, I think what's clear is that the initial protest, so the, the first big day of action, November 17th, where you had this call go out over social media, distributed across the internet, not coming from political parties or unions, that first call was really centered around this question of taxes and, and specifically the fuel tax increase that you alluded to. You know, gas is very expensive in France. I think that's an important point to make, you know, to be with when you're talking to Americans. Um, you know, French people make less money um, in terms of net income than in the United States, and gas is more expensive. So people that are living outside of cities are already spending a significant amount of money, um, you know, driving to work, driving to, to live their lives. And so when the government announced they were going to increase this fuel tax, um, you know, it depends on, 
you know, where, how, how, how often you drive, where you live, but affecting people in a substantial way, you know, anywhere from 10, 20% of their, of their, of, of the cost of increasing as a result of this tax. When the government announced that tax, you had this, this pushback and you had this call to mobilize around uh, this question of, of the fuel tax increase. And, you know, it's important to say as well that the movement has, has, has really evolved since, since that, that first day of protest. The first one, November 17, you had over 200,000 people mobilizing across the country. The next weekend, you had another big mobilization, a little bit less. But it became clear as, as these weeks have gone on, and actually this Saturday as we're speaking is the, the fifth straight weekend of protest, this movement has really come to articulate a deeper discontent with the rising cost of living with a sense of being treated unfairly by the government. And I think that's another important piece here is that, you know, they're not just rebelling against this, the, 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 the fuel tax, you know, alone in, in a vacuum. What, what they see is that people that drive their cars, people that are working class people and lower middle, you know, lower middle class people that are being affected by this tax, that are spending all this money to live their lives, they're being asked to suffer, to, to contribute more. At the same time, the super rich in France you know, get very different treatment from from this president, President Macron. They got a massive tax cut last year in, in President Macron's very first budget as president. He passed a massive tax cut for for the super rich, really. So this 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 tax cut that that, that affected people with over 1.3 million euros in assets got a tax cut. So the movement is is, a, is about a, a deeper sense of injustice. And you know, one of the things we've we've heard a lot about um, again, beginning with the fuel tax, but getting to a larger conversation now about 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 injustice is this call for for what's called in France uh, justice fiscale, so the sense of, of tax injustice. So why should working class people be having to pay these taxes that, that that affect them so much, while the rich get tax breaks? So it's 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 clear that it's a much bigger conversation here about about who's responsible, um, you know, who, who who's being asked to pay for the government um, policies and 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 inequality really. So I heard a lot in there about living costs, about taxes, about uh, fiscal justice. But I didn't hear much in there about climate change, and that seemed to have been one of the narratives that the New York Times was pushing over and over again, that this was somehow creating a debate within the, China, or the climate change movement or a divide between people who just want to have lower taxes and people who want to fight climate change. So how much are, is this yellow vest movement about climate change? You know, I, I, I don't think it's about climate change, and, that, and, that, and that's, not, that's not necessarily a, a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's just a fact if you look at the the people that are coming out to protest. You know, there was the first major uh, sociological study that came out just a few days ago that was published in Le Mans where, you know, you had researchers actually going and talking to, to people that are going out to these, uh, manning these traffic blockades across the country, people that are coming out to protest. Um, and, you know, the, the main issues for them are this question of what in France is called purchasing power. So really, you know, we can translate that to basically as the rising cost of living. You have that question, you have the, the sense of being overtaxed, and you have this also question of, of the, the distribution of wealth. So these economic questions are really the, at, the, at the fore of, of the movement. And that's not to say that, that, that people don't care about climate change or that they actually want to, or they don't believe in climate change. I just, I just don't, I haven't seen that really as being at the, at the forefront of the movement. And, you know, that, that for, for understandable reasons, you know, made some, some Greens in France and environmentalists and, you know, people, some people on the left kind of anxious about, at, at the beginning of the movement. And, you know, I think that's part of the, the kind of reticence that we saw from the traditional left in France, from the trade unions, when this movement really, really jump-started. 
You write that clearly uh, caught off guard by the initial appeal of the movement. Left-wing trade unions are seeking to turn out members and sympathizers, too. While it still hasn't endorsed the yellow vests by name, the heavyweight General Confederation of Labor, the CGT, has finally called on a nationwide day of action on December 14th, which was yesterday. What happened yesterday? Well, you know, it was uh, the, the CGT, as, as they often do, is they're able to mobilize their, their base. And there is a, you know, a real labor base in France that exists that I think is, is different than, than in the United States. When the, when the CGT calls for protest, people come out and protest. And they had tens of thousands, I believe, um, across the country. It depends on what figures you take, you know, the interior ministry versus the, the union figures. Either way, tens of thousands of people protesting. And then today, Saturday the 15th, was this, you know, this so-called Act 5 of the LBS movement. And, I, you know, it, it's pretty clear, I think, at this point. We'll see when the actual figures, the final figures actually come out. But the, the protest numbers have actually dropped. Um, so around, you know, as we're speaking right now, there's more than 30,000 people that were, that were counted um, by the afternoon as opposed to 70,000 at the same time last week. So the movement is, is, is declining. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens, what happens next year. Because, you know, another interesting point here is that, you know, we were talking about the fuel tax. When, when the government announced now uh, at the beginning of the month, beginning of December, they were going to be uh, canceling the fuel tax for 2019, excuse me, the fuel tax increase for 2019. So satisfying this, you know, this, this first big demand of the movement, the, the clearest demand of the movement, you still had calls to protest, but it was a little bit more unclear. You know, why, why come out to protest still? Um, the government has already satisfied this ostensibly the, the biggest demand. You know, what's going to make you continue to, to come out on the street? We saw another big protest uh, last weekend over, you know, around 136,000 people across the country. This week seems to be a little bit, uh, a little bit less than that. But, you know, this is a, you know, I don't want to romanticize it either way. That it's, 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 it's unclear really what the future of this movement is um, now that these demands have been, uh, have been, have been, the first demand has been satisfied. And so, it, so I should say as well, in addition to that, that uh, the fuel tax increase being canceled by Macron at the beginning of the month. Following yet another round of protests last weekend, 136,000 people across the country, the government announced on Monday Emmanuel Macron giving a, a speech, one of his, uh, at this point, only his second major address to the country um, since the movement broke out in a speech that actually got more um, spectators, people, more people watched this than the World Cup final that the, the France actually played in. In this speech, Macron actually announced another round of concessions. So what we're seeing right now is Potentially, those concessions, uh, you know, being enough to to you know to discourage people from from coming out to protest, despite the fact that the movement has a, a lot of popularity. So, at at opposite ends of the spectrum, what is the likelihood that the yellow vest movement just ends up being a one-off political action? And what's the likelihood that this is at the other end of the spectrum, the birth of a political movement, if not a political party? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good question. I think a lot of people are, are starting to ask themselves that, you know, if, if this would become a political party. And actually, some of the, the polling institutes here in France, I think there was one poll that actually uh, looked, looked ahead and, and, and uh, polled for the Yellow Jacket Party, um, the LFS party, even though it doesn't exist, for, for next, next year's uh, European elections. And they got over 10%, I believe. So, so not a not negligible amount of people. But you know the 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 next phase the next phase of movement I think is 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 pretty unclear to to be to be perfectly frank, um, you know it, it and and people are people are, are protesting for different reasons as well you know I think you know there's 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 certain people that 
you know, have a more kind of a left-wing attitude. Um, they really want to see this movement, you know, contr- you know, call for things like reestablishing the wealth tax and really, um, you know, bolstering public services. You have, you know, more right-wing components of the movement that have been that have been talking about, you know, putting more of an emphasis on taxes and, um, you know, a tiny, tiny minority. I think it's it exaggerated, but it, it exists. A tiny minority talking about the question of immigration. Um, as well, so it's it's a really messy movement. Uh, you know, I think it's important not to not to romanticize it, and it really caught the country by storm as well because it's it's coming from parts of the population that are that are not the kinds of you know parts of the French population that you, that you know people expect to protest. This is coming from not big cities, not from Paris. It's coming from rural areas of the country, and it's calling it's coming from what's called the the peri-urban um, parts of the country, meaning these kind of more rural outskirts of, of suburbs. It's a, it's 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 a real explosion of of protest, and I think you know at, at this point you know while the movement you know there seems to be a, a slight decline this weekend. If you're a you know yellow vest protest or if you're someone who sympathizes with the movement in France, and there's a, a, a enormous amount of sympathy, you know over sixty percent, which is a lot in the French context where political parties are so unpopular. If you're sitting and, and watching this movement and you see the way that they've been able to gain a a cancellation of the fuel tax increase beginning of the month. And then just this Monday, Macron announcing three additional concessions, hiking the minimum wage, um, decreasing a, a tax that was affecting retiree pension benefits, um, and also detaxing uh, overtime pay. Um, if you see all these concessions, the, less, the lesson here is obviously, you know, protest is working. And not just protest, but actually <laughs> confronting the police. And, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and endorse violence, but it's clear that these protests have had a clear effect. And I think the lesson here is that Macron, despite, you know, the, the kind of condescending attitude that he's given to protesters since he took office last May, that he actually can be broken and that he will make concessions if you turn out in mass and you scare them. And there's no question. The government was absolutely, potentially still is petrified of this movement. And this is part that I don't get. So you write, uh, you wrote back on December 7th, uh, three weeks after the protest started. The political establishment has been caught flat-footed by the Yellow Vest protest. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe, a member of President Emmanuel Macron's La République en Marche party, has uh, vowed the government will not repeal a planned hike in the fuel tax, much maligned by protesters. But he also said that he understood people's suffering. In typical fashion, Macron has not yet commented on the matter, saying he would only do so, do so in due time. And he said that he was going to implement these reforms that he is implementing. He said that he was going to do that during his campaign, no matter how much harm it might do to the public or no matter how unhappy the public was, he was going to put in those reforms. So I guess my question Mm -hmm. is, if he's making these concessions when he said he was promising these reforms, why is he the person who's running the country? It seems like the policies that the protesters want more are the policies that, uh, you know, are more along the lines of Mélenchon than Macron. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is an important observation, and I think uh, I'm glad you're pointing out. I think, I think all too often it kind of gets cast aside, especially in, outside of France, you know, especially in the United States and in the U.K. and, and kind of more of the, the Anglo, Anglo-American press, this idea that, that Macron has a, you know, has, has, has a mandate. And he never really did. I think that that's an important point here. Emmanuel Macron never had a popular base for the kinds of policies that he's implementing. Whether it was the fuel tax increase that we just saw, whether it was these uh, really really anti-union labor reforms that are going to make it easier for that have made it easier for for business to fire workers, um, you know, whether it's his massive tax cut for the super rich, these kinds of policies don't have a, a popular base in France. Macron is president 
for a very simple reason, one, one reason, and that's because his opponent in last year's presidential election was Marine Le Pen of the far-right National Front Party, someone who is, you know, detested even more than Macron, and, and fortunately, that's the case. Um, you know, if you, if you polled people who voted in last year's presidential election, the number one reason for voting for Macron was to vote against Le Pen, was to deny the presidency to, to Marine Le Pen. And, you know, the, the margin was a, was a comfortable victory for, for Macron, um, you know, got over 30 points uh, more than, than Le Pen did in, in the second round of the election. Um, but that was, that was an anti-Le Pen vote. And so Macron arrives in office and then actually has a, a legislative majority as well, which is, which is important to, to point out in Parliament. Um, you know, very low turnout in the legislative elections that filed that presidential election. Macron has this, this majority in Parliament, but he doesn't have a, you know, an, actual, an actual base to, that, that supports these policies other than, you know, I would say, you know, white collar professionals that represent, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the French electorate, the kind of people that are also overrepresented in media, uh, you know, in, in wealthier circles that have access to, you know, uh, information and that have, you know, the, the networks to be able to, to, to advance their narrative about French society. And so we, we, we've, seen, we've seen their line overrepresented. And what's in a lot of ways illuminating and encouraging about the LFS movement is they're basically showing, no, these policies do not have a mandate. Um, they're extraordinarily unpopular. And Macron is, actually, is, is, is loathed at home. Um, you know, when I talk to Americans, they're often surprised to, to hear this. But, you know, President Trump, who's, who's obviously an unpopular president, uh, you know, is far more, far more popular than Emmanuel Macron is in France. You know, someone who has, uh, I think the, the most recent polls had him under 30% approval ratings, which is, which is, you know, very, very bad. Is this merely urban versus rural? Is it that simple? What happens, and you know this, what happens so often here in the United States is what we do is we just transplant our own political thinking and then we place them over other countries. So what we try to do is find our politics in other places. In France, what they're trying to make this out to be is some sort of, you know, Macron was the Hillary Clinton of France when he was elected. I remember hearing that on CNN International. And yeah, now yeah. Uh, they're saying that these protesters, even President Trump has said that, tweeted that the, the crowds were chanting Trump, Trump, Trump at the Yellow Vest movement, which nobody said they heard. Yeah. So what happens yeah. when we transplant our own views of the United States, how do we confuse ourselves when we transplanted our own political views onto France? Well, you know, I think one of the one of the big points here, and when I you know talk to Americans about this, and I think you know people were people were reticent in France as well. I should say, you know, when the movement first started. But if you're in the United States and, and you see these protests, and maybe you know it didn't make news the first weekend, maybe not the second weekend, but definitely by the third weekend, where you had these violent, spectacular images in, in Paris. You hear about people protesting against taxes, and that, you know, smacks of a kind of reactionary ideology. You know, if you, if you think about, you know, protests in the U.S. about, you know, people protesting a gas tax, um, you know, because they, they drive their cars, and, and gas is also you know, far, more, far, far more cheap in the United States is another important point here. But I think if you just look at that and you see this kind of anti-tax revolt, it can kind of smack of, you know, a Tea Party kind of ideology, libertarians in the U.S., um, but, you know, the, the fact is in France that, that, that people here are not protesting against the idea of, of the government being involved in the economy. They actually believe deeply in, in, in the state being involved in the economy. They just want it to act fairly. I think that's a really important distinction to, to, to make. You know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, get the government out of my lives. It's 
in our lives, but we wanted to act more equitably, to act more justly, to make the rich pay. I think that's, you know, one of the big, um, you know, you know, differences when, when you talk when you talk about the American political climate, and it's one of the things that I think accounts for reluctance in, in the U.S. to, you know, to understand this movement. Um, you know, but as, as far as the, the urban-rural divide, it, it's, that's something that, that exists. Uh, you know, it, it's true that these, these really come from from outside the the cities. That's not to say that's the the major dividing line in, in in French society or in French political life, or that it should be. But it is a fact that these these protests have, have come out and you know started in these these kind of abandoned parts of the country. You know, there, there's a really well known uh, reputable demographer uh, here, Hervé Lebrun, who did a who did a study of the protests, and he found that these are coming. You can kind of draw a diagonal line across the country from the northeast down to the southwest. It's kind of center of the country where you see the most protests that are happening in these parts of the of the country that have seen population decline, that are seeing a lack of investment from um, from from or that, that have seen public services being cut, um, and that are that are that are isolated. So you know, it is true that this is coming from from uh, you know from more rural parts of the country, but. I think the the ultimate divide here, um, the, the clearest one, is this is about class. You know, if you poll people on their support of the movement in France, it's pretty clear. Uh, the wealthy, the wealthier people in France are less likely to support the protest, even though they have some sympathy, um, just over 50%, around 50%. But if you poll working class people, uh, they're the most supportive of this movement. And there's a real class uh, divide here. And I think, honestly, you know, if you look at the media coverage from the beginning, too, that accounts for some of the reluctance as well. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in media for, for some time now, and I can tell you that the, the attitude of, of fellow journalists was, you know, a little dismissive and condescending as well. When you see, you know, working class people going out to, to traffic blockades and, and maybe, you know, swearing a little bit or, or having kind of nasty slogans or, or you know, not being completely clear on, on, on certain points and, um, you know, for not being being suspicious because they're not, you know, environmentally conscious enough. So. I think that's a that's it's a really important point here. There, there's you know you you can criticize the movement. There's lots of critiques to be made, but this really is a a, a popular working class movement. How much do you think that class aspect of this movement leads to the confusion that we are having, especially here in the U.S. media, about the yellow vest movement because of any and we've heard it from a lot of people on this show uh, of a lack of class consciousness here in the United States. Are we confused about what the yellow movement is because here in the United States our media refuses to have a conversation about class and never discuss the class aspect of any kind of movement or political struggle? Mm. No, I think I think it's an interesting point. Um, you know, one of the one of the, one of the great things about France is is that people are, are pretty suspicious of, of of the rich, of the super rich. So class is present in a way in, in in French society and French political life in a way that I don't think it is in the U.S. So, it, you know, there there was there was some confusion at the beginning. Again, I keep repeating it, but it's important about kind of what this movement was about. But it's become pretty clear here that this this is really about this is really about class. And I think if that's the 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 frame through which you view politics, and that is you know, tends to be a, the way that, that a lot of French people view politics, um, you know, that doesn't always translate into, in, into the U.S. 
Uh, so uh, one of the other things I heard was on uh, also on CNN International, I believe. I don't think it was France 24. I think it was on CNN International. Uh, they were saying that now that the protests are dwindling, that the uh, radicals on the right and the left were taking advantage of the protests. Are radicals right now in control of the protests? I don't think anyone's in control of the protests. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean that in a, in a good way or, or a bad way. You know, I, I was just out there. Um, you know, we were walking around and, 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 and kind of observing two of the two of the big rallying points. You had the more kind of left wing rallying point in, in Paris, trade unionists, uh, anti-capitalist, socialists, you know, general left wingers who were sympathetic to the movement. They turned out. But then you go to the other, you know, yellow vest protest at the, actually right in front of the opera. And it was, you know, very disorganized and people just kind of show up. I don't mean that in a good way or bad way again, but it's just a fact that that. You know, people aren't. No one's in control of, of of these protests. When I when I see people speculating about, oh, you know, Marine Le Pen's gonna gonna suck up these protesters and you know give them orders. I, I there's no evidence of that actually on the ground, because this is happening in such a kind of haphazard way. Just angry people on social media. If if you really want to really want to see that happen kind of organically, I you know I'd encourage you to to go look at their, some of these Facebook groups. You know, one of the big ones, La France en colère, which means you know, France uh, enraged, France France in, in anger. And you can kind of see these discussions. And that's how they're happening. Um, it, 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 it's happening from people saying, let's do this. Um, and then a bunch of people like, you know, like a page or they'll, they'll then, you know, send up a mass, you know, email out based off a of social media conversation. Um, you know, that's, that's really how that's happening. And, you know, to, to, to get back to your initial question, it's true. There have been some people on, on the far left and far right, I would say probably more on the far left, um, trying to get involved in these, in these protests. But the question of control, I think, is just, uh, I think it's pretty clear that, that no one's really in, in, in control of this. Um, you know, there, there have been some images circulated of, um, on social media of, of protesters kicking out people from the far right. You know, I think you have some, you know, radical, they're called sovereigntists in, in France that are, that are taking part. You even had a air, uh, uh, um, you know, monarchist <laughs> that they're actually taking part. But they're such a fair part of, of this movement. I'm sorry, I missed my button. So uh, to what degree do you think uh, are people in France, to what degree are they applying their own political projection onto the Yellow Vest movement? Because that is something, and I hate to, again, compare this to U.S. politics, but that's something that happened with Obama's presidential campaign. And I'm Mm. curious to what degree projection is increasingly becoming applied when the public is selecting their elected representatives around the world or how that's having an effect on the way that we view politics. So, so are people projecting onto the yellow vest movement, whatever they want to see in it? Yeah, I think actually, I think that's a really good point to make because I, 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 I think that that's true actually to some extent that, that accounts for the fact that you have both people, on the far left, yeah. I think we just lost him. Please yeah, I'll get, get him, back. him back online. I want to finish that thought. I want to make sure I don't forget what the question was. Projection. Alrighty, projection on the Yellow Vest movement. We are speaking with journalist Cole Stangler. He's talking to us live from Paris. Cole wrote last month's Jacobin article, Yellow Vests Against the President of the Rich. And this month he had an article at The Nation, What's really behind France's yellow vest protest? Cole is a former staff writer at International Business Times and In These Times. You can follow Cole on Twitter, at Cole Stangler. And you can find out more about Cole at ColeStangler.com. Do we have him back yet? Or Almost. Oh, ready? 
This is Hell. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. You can find us on Instagram at thisishellradio. And you can support us via Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Uh, Don't forget our question from hell is posted at our Facebook page right now. If you want to have a chance at winning Jesse Baring's book, Suicidal, all you have to do is play along with this week's question from hell. All right, so Cole, we were in the midst of talking about projection and how people are projecting their own political beliefs onto the LFS movement. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a really excellent point um, to to make here, because I think that does exist to some extent. It's why when you look at the polling, you have this kind of broad, broad support. Um, from people that consider themselves both on the far right, on the far left, people that are more moderate, people that are more left-wing. And it, it, it's true. I think that's part of what's happening. I think a really telling point here, for, you know, the point at which it became really clear to me that this was definitely a, a phenomenon, was after Macron's speech on Monday, the speech where he, he laid out those three concessions that were deemed, uh, you know, insufficient by basically, you know, people across the political spectrum. You know, if you look at the reactions, everyone was kind of, criticizing Macron's speech, but then criticizing it with their own interpretations of what actually the movement wanted. So you had, you know, Jean-Luc Mélenchon from France Insoumise on the left saying, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't address, you know, student concerns, retiree concerns, um, bigger questions of social justice. He actually gave a, a speech in response. Uh, then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you had Marine Le Pen tweeting, you know, this doesn't address people's concerns about mass immigration and national identity. So you have these, you know, and, and, you know, obviously the implication is that's what the movement is actually about being from, from the far right. So in some sense, it, I, I think it has become this kind of signifier of just frustration to, to Emmanuel Macron, where you can say, oh, it's based on taxes and, um, you know, uh, a, a distaste for the arrogance of the man in part. Or you can say, oh, no, it's about um, the fact that his, his, his policies, of, you know, hurting the working class. But I, I, I think I think still, you know, there is a common denominator here. I think that, that that phenomenon is happening to some extent. But again, I would I would point back to this uh, to the study I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, big kind of research study that was done on the protesters, and it's really clear this is about, you know, questions about uh, rising cost of living, about the distribution of wealth, and about uh, taxes disproportionately hitting working class people. Again, if you if you talk about the solutions, you know, to to, to so what do people actually demand? What are what are people asking for? Then it becomes a lot more complicated. You know, you have this this real hodgepodge of demands that, that, that that's really messy and, and sometimes contradictory. Um, and I think it depends on who you ask. You know, if you people in certain parts of the country might say they want certain things, people in other parts say they want different things. There there was one you know big uh, actually a number of different lists of demands that have been circulating. And if you look at just the kind of a, a cross section of those lists. You kind of get a sense of these, these contradict these contradictions. You have people asking for simultaneously an increase in the minimum wage, but also asking for a decrease in employer uh, payroll taxes. You have people asking to uh, better integrate immigrants into French society, um, integrate you know and assimilate, which has this real kind of right wing connotation in France, but also saying they want to the government should should treat asylum seekers um, you know with more dignity. So you have this, you know, this this hodgepodge of demands, and and you know, I, I wish I had clearer answers for you, but the, the fact is, I think everyone's kind of asking themselves these questions in France. It's part of why this movement is so fascinating um, and so interesting, and and I think part of its appeal as well. It's it's, it's come to just, uh, you know, 
represent this broader discontent with with uh, you know French society as it stands and with with Emmanuel Macron. I think you know that's the that that that's the other important denominator here. So so even though, despite the fact that he won the election. Were these protests, was the Olivest movement, was this inevitable considering the unpopularity of Macron's policy despite being elected? And what would have happened if Macron had simply refused to back down? Well, I mean, I, I think a movement like this is, you know, it was time that, that a movement like this happened. Um, and, and in some sense, it's surprising it's taken this long. Um, and, you know, on a, on a personal level, I feel somewhat vindicated because I was trying to say from the beginning that this presidency never had never had much of a, of a base of support, unlike some of the more, um, you know, writers for some of the more prestigious outlets and, you know, in the Times and the Washington Post who have been able to advance their, their, their agenda. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I think Macron, you know, this movement was a, was a long time, long time coming. And could you actually just repeat your, your second question there, which I, I just forgot. Oh, and so, oh, um, I, I, so did I, but my, my, one of the things I wanted to get to, because we're a little bit against the clock, and I want to make sure that we get rid of some of these uh, misapprehensions that people may have of what is taking place in France. One of the things we always hear whenever there's a problem with any budget in Europe is always the same thing. And so I'm going to apply it here to France is, are the problems that France is facing when it comes to their bottom line, uh, are they simply the outcome of France, France having a, a social safety net that costs too much and is too far-reaching? Is the problem big, bad government overspending, waste, and corruption? No, I think, I think that's, that's not really what the problem is here. I think, you know, I, I think fortunately France has a social safety net. <laughs> Otherwise, the situation would be a lot worse. If you actually looked at what happened during the, the recession, um, com- if you compare France to other countries in Southern Europe, like Italy, like Spain, even compared to the UK, if you look at the effects of that, and, you know, we've seen the rise of the far right in Italy. We've seen the far rise of the far right in the UK uh, with UKIP and then obviously with Brexit, this huge backlash. One of the things that, that France had, fortunately, as a kind of buttress was uh, and is the existence of this really broad social safety net, which actually, you know, keeps communities together and, and gives people a, a decent um standard of living. It's not enough. And there's lots of holes in it. And that's part of what the protests are about. But I would say it's actually one of the one of the things that's tying French society, French society together in keeping a lot of these communities afloat. Um, so so no. And, you know, on the other end of the, the spectrum, there's there's an enormous amount of wealth in France. I think it's funny to read some of the portrayals of France, you know, in outlets like The Economist. I'm thinking of the, the Paris Bureau Chief for The Economist. He wrote a whole book about, you know, France's crippling... <laughs> you know, social spending and, and, and big government, um, you know, I, 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 I just think it's not representative of what, uh, you know, people here necessarily, um, necessarily, necessarily think. And so within that context, then, how radical are the policies of Macron? You know, like, like I said, Macron's policies are, are basically, he's, he's implementing an agenda that has long been demanded by the, the main uh, employer association, the, the, you know, the equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce here, trying to undermine labor unions to make it easier to lay workers off, trying to undercut uh, their collective bargaining, bargaining agreements, trying to, to make it easier to, to, to dismiss people. Um, you know, that, that, that the labor reform to, you know, is one example. The other thing with the other point here is the, the tax cut for the super rich. You know, that's been a demand of, of, of the employers, you know, big employers and, and, and of the wealthy for, for quite some time. Um, you know, and, and 
you know, I think that's that, that's uh, that, that's that's important to important to draw out there. Yeah. One last question for you. We have been speaking with journalist Cole Stangler. He has been talking to us live from Paris. You wrote last month's Jacobin article, Yellow Vests Against the President of the Rich, and this month's article at The Nation. What's really behind France's Yellow Vest protest? Cole is a former staff writer at International Business Times, and in these times, you can follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Stangler, and you can find out more about Cole at ColeStangler.com. One last question for you, Cole, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about the political establishment actually being uh, challenged during these yellow vest uh, protests across the political spectrum, the political establishments being challenged. And you mentioned this idea of a convergence of struggles. There's a kind of magical formula, you write, often invoked in French activist circles, the convergence of struggles to people who don't spend much time thinking about politics. The term often comes across as hackneyed and utopian, the marker of a seasoned trade unionist out of sync with the rest of the population. With the the former now taking the latter's lead, the ideas, the idea actually doesn't sound so far-fetched today. So it seems like there's this potential for a convergence of even the right and the left coming together on this issue of class in France. Meanwhile, we have in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem, they're reporting new yellow vest protests there. Al Monitor is reporting yellow vest uh, protests in Turkey. To what is the likelihood that this yellow vest movement could spark an international movement for fair taxation? Yeah, that is a tough question. Uh, I actually, I've actually been asked that quite, quite a. Lot. I think maybe there is. If I'm, I'll, I'll try to actually not not take a cop out answer here, and I'll try to address the question. I think maybe there's more of a potential in. In you have know, neighboring countries, you know we've seen some of these movements in in Belgium and and in Holland, you know. So so and I'm also you know at my heart I'm a, I'm an internationalist. You know I think that's the way I view politics. Uh, I don't think nation states are are, are, are terribly important. Uh, you know or, or you know we have to draw parallels across borders. Obviously that's that's what my heart says. But you know part of me also I think is important to stress is. You know, France. French people have a very particular relationship with with the state. They view the state in a particular way. That's that's the frame through which they view politics. I mentioned class earlier. Class is so important. The state too is 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 very important. It's it's the the manner in which you address grievances. People turn to the state um, because that's that's what you do to to fix problems. And I think that kind of connection that exists in France, I think, is so important. And you know, maybe we don't see that as much in in other countries. Um, but but then again, I'd love to be proven wrong. And if, if more and more working class people are revolting against governments that mistreat them uh, across the world, then that's, that's obviously a good thing. So, Well, we'll have you back on when we can uh, prove you right. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Take, Cole, take care, Cole. Thank you very much for being on our show and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, th- thank you so much for having me. It was great. Take care. You too. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Rape is a very, very difficult thing to discuss. And I'll tell you from this week, it's a pretty difficult thing to read about, too. And that's really bad because we definitely need to be talking about rape a whole lot more as our next guest sees an international conspiracy within which we are all complicit in keeping silent about rape. We'll have a very important yet difficult conversation on an uncomfortable topic in a few minutes with Sohaila. It's Sohaila. Abdulali, Sohaila 
Abdulali, author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history in 1890, 128 years ago on the Standing Rock Reservation in South Dakota. And there's a long history of bad things happening to Native Americans at Standing Rock and in rotten history, so please prepare yourself. The Lakota warrior Sitting Bull was shot dead by police. See? For many years, Sitting Bull had been one of the staunchest and most uncompromising resistance fighters on the Western American frontier and one of the last to surrender to federal troops. Because, you know... U.S. policy of genocide toward the people who lived here before Whitey. More recently, Sitting Bull had performed with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, during which it was reported that, while riding his horse around the arena to great applause, he would sometimes shout curses at the clueless white audiences in his own native language, which is really cool. And some of them were real zingers, too. Like, how many white people does it take to start a fire? Ten. One to start the fire and the other nine to claim... How the one white guy invented it. Much of the money Sitting Bull earned in those shows he gave to homeless people, which makes you wonder about 19th century homelessness. Jesus Christ. Are there any histories on that topic? I gotta know. But when federal officials learned that Sitting Bull was lending his considerable prestige to a new Native American resistance movement called the Ghost Dancers, Federal orders were issued for Sitting Bull's arrest. The Ghost Dancers, great name for a Native American resistance movement, and oddly, even a better name for a Canadian prog rock band as well. I think it's safe to make the assumption there is a Canadian prog rock band named Ghost Dancers. I think it's pretty safe. In the village of Standing Rock, some 40 police officers and volunteers converged on Sitting Bull's house at dawn, demanded that he give himself up, When he refused, it resulted in a shootout between police and villagers in which Sitting Bull and seven of his supporters were killed. Damn, the cops love killing people at dawn. What's with that? As a public service announcement to all our listeners, if the cops ask you to come out of your house at any time near dawn, immediately make certain all your papers, all your affairs are in order, because you are not going to make it to lunch. In Rotten History, 1914, 104 years ago, at a coal mine, and a lot of Rotten History happens in coal mines, at a coal mine owned and operated by the Mitsubishi Company on the Kyushu Island of southern Japan, an ignition of underground coal gas sent thick smoke pouring out of vents at ground level, quickly followed by a catastrophic blast that shot a mine elevator cage 50 feet into the air. So it's like the end of Willy Wonka, except instead of a fantastic view of the skyline followed by fun, it's a fantastic view of the sky on fire followed by death. The explosion killed 687 people inside the mine and caused damage on the surface in a 700-foot radius around the mine entrance. To this day, it reminds the, remains the deadliest coal mine accident in Japanese history. I hate that. I absolutely hate that phrase. To this day. To this day, it remains the deadliest coal mine accident in Japanese history. To me, to this day implies that the writer knows something about the future that I don't know. Like it's some sort of threat of pending doom. For instance, let's say you get a romantic note from your lover, and it's signed, To this day, I love you. 
you're not going to be all that confident in that relationship's longevity or sustainability. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Time to announce three more of our favorite 18 books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list at thisishell.com right now. The next three books are about the end of liberalism, the beginning of neoliberalism, and why one of this year's guests is done with talking to white people about race. Our next three books featured on This Is Hell in 2018 that made our favorite lists for 2018. Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick J. Deneen. Neoliberalism by Julie A. Wilson. And Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. In Why Liberalism Failed, Patrick argues that liberalism's failure is a result of his or its own success, and that is by making the individual paramount liberalism got us where we are today, in a world that puts profit before people, and destroys a sense of community and collective action. So thanks, liberalism. You succeeded, and now we're all failing. In Julie's book, Neoliberalism, she explains that neoliberalism is more than economics or politics. Neoliberalism has had an impact on every aspect of our lives. Every part of our culture has been corrupted by neoliberalism, whether you realize it or not. And Julie's book will do exactly that, help you realize how neoliberalism has screwed with all of us. Rennie's exceptional book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, is a breakup letter with whiteness. And uh, that breakup has broken a lot of white people's hearts. And white people really do not like to hear black people saying they will no longer be talking to white people about race. White people hate hearing that almost as much as they hate hearing black people talk about race. And that's a lot. No matter your race, you got to check out why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and all the books in our favorite 18 books featured here on This Is Hell in 2018. And you can see that entire list right now at thisishell.com. Thisishell.com. This week's question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful. All replies get read on air during the fourth hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we are featuring during that fourth hour, Jesse Baring's Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Again, the question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the fourth hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a difficult conversation on rape and why our conversations on rape are so difficult. The untold costs of the post-9-11 wars in blood and treasure. How California's water politics can lead to war with Iran. A potentially even more difficult conversation than the one we're going to have on rape, and that one's going to be on suicide. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin sees the glass as entirely full. All that stuff, plus we'll reveal more of the best books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. We'll have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some uh, listeners for supporting This Is Hell, some for sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell in alphabetical order, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. 
live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is hell. Rape is a very difficult thing to discuss in many parts of the world. The problem is rape needs to be discussed or we will all be complicit in the international conspiracy to silence discussion on rape. Here to help us with this very difficult discussion, Sohaila Abdulali is author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sohaila. Sohaila, I oh, just want to make sure you're there. Uh, you can, yes, thank you. You can find out more about Sohaila at SohailaInc.com, SohailaInc.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Sohaila Abdulali. What do we mean? I know this is a really basic place to start, but what do we mean by rape? Does our legal definition differentiate from our cultural or social definition, if you will? I think so, and there's also not one legal definition. It depends on which time, which country, which state you're talking about. So I think when I talk about rape, I'm talking about the very, very basic definition of somebody penetrates somebody else against their will. Um, But I think that part of the problem in talking about it is that we use it as a metaphor for so many things, the rape of the countryside, the rape of morals, the rape of this, that. So we always put a lot more on it. But in my book, I talk about the very specific physical act. Does that other application of the word rape to other things, like raping the countryside, do you think that undermines our ability to address the type of rape that you are discussing? I'm not sure. I don't think so, because in some ways it's kind of an honest way of acknowledging that it's always what it is and something more, because even even when we talk about the kind of rape that I'm talking about, it's never just one act on one person. There's always a whole lot of sociology and religion and economics involved in that. So, yes, I think it's, I prefer keeping terms clean, but I think that the problems we have are more than just words. You write that rape drains the light, like J.K. Rowling's fantastically terrifying Dementors. It sucks joy, and along with draining the light from victims' lives, it tends to drain the light from sensible conversation. Why don't we have sensible conversations about rape? Is it simply because the topic is uncomfortable, like a topic we'll be discussing later on our show, uh, suicide? I think so. I think that's part of it. But also, I think we get ourselves very confused because of the proximity of rape and sex. And this is a difficult part of the conversation because I want to be very clear that rape is not sex. It's not, but on the other hand, it's an act of sexual violence. And so given how uncomfortable we generally are talking about sex, then it becomes even more complicated to talk about unwanted sex. Um, So, yeah, it is difficult and complicated. I have to say I also find it rather fascinating because to me it's an expression of just how crazy human beings are. We take this beautiful thing, sex, and we somehow turn it into something rotten and corrupt. You're right, uh, how sometimes rape does have to do with sex. How does, uh, uh, how can sometimes rape have anything to do with sex? Is it still about taking by force, which rape is, and about sex? Well, it's confusing because you think about there are all different kinds of rape. For instance, there's 
rape and war, where soldiers are given orders to rape women purely for the sake of damage. There's that. And then there's rape that, that we know more commonly, rape within acquaintances. Most rape happens with acquaintances. A lot of rapes happen between lovers or would-be lovers. So you can have a situation where it starts off as sex or it starts off as sexual desire on the part of at least one person. And then suddenly it's not that anymore because it, it becomes about power and overcoming someone. So the two can live very closely together. And that makes it confusing for society. And let me tell you, it makes it extra confusing for the victims because it becomes that much easier for us to blame ourselves or say somehow it's our fault. So it, it is difficult because the two are linked, but I would never say they're the same because they're not. You also talk about, write about the uh, problems with titillation that go along with rape and this uh, relationship between rape and sex. What does it reveal about us when there's a sense of titillation coming uh, from rape or uh, related to rape when rape is something that is an act of forcing yourself upon another person? Well, I think there's several things. One is just that as human beings, we often tend to kind of intellectually stop at age five and laugh about anything that has to do with anything to do with sex or violence and make it small. And the other thing is that it's a, it's a kind of denial of how horrible it is. It's truly a horrible thing. And in some ways, to make it manageable, we kind of try to associate it with something pleasant. And it could also be complete lack of understanding. The day after I was raped, a friend of mine, thinking she was going to comfort me, said, wow, you were with four guys at once, which completely confused me because it wasn't like that. I wasn't with them. What explains that kind of reaction? I've had that kind of reaction recently uh, with people when, because I'm disabled, when they talk about my disability, they'll say something that comes off, they're uncomfortable, they'll say something that comes off as insulting, uh, they're trying to be humorous, and it just doesn't work. To you, what explains, especially in the case of rape, and your experience with rape, what explains to you somebody who would blurt out something that seems so unfeeling when they're feeling uncomfortable? Is it, because it seems like a, a kind of a, another attack upon you. It, well, it does. And I'm sure you found the same thing with your disability. I, I don't know what it is, but the same kind of thing where it can come from several places. It can come from a bad place of you really don't believe there's such a thing as rape and you think someone's making a big deal out of nothing. It can come out of just plain discomfort where you have no idea what to say. So you say the first ridiculous thing that comes to mind. And I, I'm much more forgiving of that because I've done it plenty of times myself, say the most inappropriate thing. So I'm more forgiving of that. But I feel that this business of saying something spectacularly wrong can really be ameliorated by us talking more about it. Because if it's something you've never talked with and never dealt with, you really don't know what to say. And so sometimes just to say something, you just say the wrong thing. I think especially in America, people are like this about death too where it's such a difficult topic that someone dies, people are always saying something to either make it seem not such a big deal or make it seem like it's the end of the world for everyone. You know, we, it's, a hard time, it's hard to find the balance when you're faced with it for the first time, especially if it's someone you know. That's interesting that there is kind of, there's a 
uh, the comparison between reacting to death and reacting to rape. That's really that's really fascinating. Uh, so w- what I'm hoping to do with this conversation and what I why uh, I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Sohaila Abdullahi. She is author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Um, and uh what I wanted to have was a sensible conversation about rape. So the important question here is what do we lose by not having sensible conversations about rape? If we were able to have sensible conversations about rape, what good do you hope that would do? Oh, I think it would transform the world because I think we lose a lot by not talking about it. There there are kind of two sides to it. There's the victim side and the perpetrator side. On the victim side, we lose a lot because, as anyone who has been raped knows, it's really awful to feel alone and to feel that nobody understands you and to feel that there's no help, to just to feel bad about it and not have recourse. Um, and the other thing that we do when we don't talk about it is we kind of give a free pass to rapists because we act like they don't exist or we quickly pretend they're out there and there's nothing we can do about them. We allow ourselves to have these images in our head of rapists are monsters out there. They're not really regular guys. And and that way we take away the opportunity to actually try to do something, to change society, to change how we talk to our kids. So I think we lose a lot. I think it's almost impossible to even start to think about what we lose in terms of psychological health and good relationships and economic value of people who lose work so much. And those who want to support the person who is the survivor of rape, they probably come up to the, uh, you know, the challenge of what they should do next. Should they comfort or should they be should they leave the person alone? After reading this book about suicide recently, I know what the problems are with leaving the person alone. After reading your book, I also can see what the problems are with comfort, because in comforting somebody who is a rape victim, that can lead to that becoming the identity of the rape victim, that the rape becomes their identity. So is is there a cut-and-dried, easy answer to what we can do to support those who are rape survivors? Should they be left alone so they can figure out the problems for themselves, or should they have the comfort that might lead to other emotional problems for them in the future? <laughs> well, um I don't think there's any situation in the world where there's a cut-and-dried way to deal with it because that would be great. But I think that in terms of, you know, I have a whole chapter in my book. It's called the Abdullali Guidelines for Saving a Rape Survivor's Life. And I have these 11 points I've put out. But basically, I don't think it's either. The, I think you can't go wrong if you're, you're, you have a loved one who's been sexually assaulted. You can't go wrong if your main thought is to give them control. So let them know you're there for them. Let them know you believe them. You're not a court of law. It's not your job to decide whether, you know, whether it was actually legally rape or not. Just let them know you believe them. Be there. Give them the resources, but let them decide. I don't think there's ever a case of genuine comfort causing someone to feel like the rape is their identifier in life. But I do think that if you're ignored or if someone acts like if you've been raped, that's it, you're ruined for life. That That is traumatic. So I think it's like, uh, you know, like you said, I don't know what the rules are for suicide, but for rape and with many other traumas, it's really basically common sense. If, if someone, if this has happened to someone, 
ask what you can do for them, be there for them, don't be so upset that they have to comfort you, and treat them like the same person they were before, because they are the same person. They're just the same person to whom something awful has happened. You write about your, uh, you had an article back in the 1980s. You talked about uh, your uh, rape experience. That article then went viral in 2012. You then wrote uh, one of the most read op-eds ever at the New York Times about your rape experience. Um, so, it, but in through that whole process, you got a lot of emails from people. Again, your experience was 30 years in your past. You got a lot of emails from people about their experiences, and suddenly you felt like you had to comfort them. How, what do you think was expected of you by the people who d- did read and reply to your writing? Was there something that they expected of you because of your experience as a rape victim? Um, I think so. I, I can't say for sure what it was, but I found it very moving and that people, I think I got about a thousand emails from survivors all over the world, from just about every continent where, where there are humans. And some of them just had never told a single person and all I think all they wanted was to say it or write it for the first time. And some of them asked for advice, what should I do, who should I call? Some of them just wanted to say, look, we read your story and we could relate. So I think they wanted different things, but mostly I think they just wanted connection. So I wrote back to every single person. Um, and then I, I just kind of kept all the emails because it felt like it was an act of respect not to delete them. And it turned out that that was actually a, a smart decision on my part because when I decided to write this book, I went back to those emails and I found the people whom I thought might not be re-traumatized if I wrote back to them suddenly five years later. And quite a few of them turned out to be the people I talked to for this book. How much did you, writing about your experience again uh, three decades later, how much did your uh, original story from the 1980s going viral, how much did that rekindle in you many or any of the uh, emotional difficulties that you had, any of the problems that you had following your rape? Did that lead you back into the discomfort you had after your rape? Um, not too much because I, I, I'm fortunate in the sense of I've spent the last three decades having a whole other life a whole, not other life, but a life in which I've, I haven't buried it, but it's been part of what happened to me. And you know how it is. You keep living, and each event becomes smaller compared to everything else that has happened. So, so many other things have happened. It's now a traumatic thing that happened to me, but it's not the thing that happened to me. So actually, what it was much, there were many new concerns when it suddenly came out. First of all, I was shocked because I'd almost forgotten about that article. So I was a bit shocked, and I was kind of vaguely annoyed because I didn't want to be put back in this position of being the rape victim. And also, by 30 years later, I'm a family person. I have a child. My brother has children. The biggest concern for us was not more how we tell them and how we use this to educate them than what happened to me. So no, I didn't start having flashbacks or anything, but it did make me think about it. And Actually, it's been very positive because it made me realize I've grown up. I'm not, I'm not that same person anymore. Well, after your rape, you write that you didn't feel shame and you were surprised 
about a story in the news that was reported uh, rather admiringly of a woman who self-immolated following her abuse seemingly due to shame. What does that say to you about the way that we view rape when a story in the media seemingly, you know, admires somebody for killing themselves out of shame following rape? Well, for one thing, I just want to uh, say that 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 was in India, but I don't want to make it sound as if people only die after rape in India. There are plenty of cases here where people commit suicide, not necessarily because they feel they've been dishonored, but for other reasons. They go into depression or they get no support. So it's a worldwide phenomenon. But I, I, I just found it shocking. I was, you know, I was only 17, and I had somehow grown up in this family where we didn't have those attitudes. I'm not sure why, but we didn't. And I had actually never had a conversation about rape with anybody in my life, which was normal in those times. So then there I was. I'd been raped a few days ago, and my father and I were in India, and we saw this story in the paper, and we were just we were just shocked. We couldn't un- we couldn't understand why this woman would kill herself, a and b, why this was meant to be a good thing. To us, the question was, well, why didn't her husband report it to the police when somebody took her away? Why didn't he help her in the morning? So, to me, it points out one of the things I'm trying to say in my book, which is that. In every society, we have these huge gaps in the way we think about rape and sexual assault. These huge gaps that we don't even realize exist until something happens. It happened here with the Kavanaugh hearings for the Supreme Court, where there were some of us who listened to Christine Blasey Ford, and she was so believable and so credible, and everything she said made sense. And then there were the people who listened to him, and everything he said made sense, and uh, you know, where, where, how are we going to meet if we don't discuss this except when something extreme happens? What is the cost that a rape victim has to pay for telling, for revealing that they have been raped? Because I don't think people really realize what a rape victim has to go through uh, when they are telling people that they have been raped. Yeah. it's unbelievable. The cost of not telling is terrible because you're stuck with this horrible secret. And the cost of telling, well, it depends who you are and where you are, right? There are places, say, in India where telling can mean, really, it can mean death because you've dishonored your family, so the only way is to die. Whereas you take, say, say, a place like New York City where I live. Say you're out there and you've been raped by a stranger. So, again, for right away you're in a better position in terms of reporting because people are more likely to believe you if it's a stranger. But you have to go through so much. You have to call the cops. You have to go to the hospital. You have to get a rape exam, which, let me tell you, is just no fun at all because someone is replicating all the physical things that happen to you in a hospital setting. Then if you're lucky and you're one of the very tiny minority where the person is caught and there's a case, then you have to go to court. Then you have to deal with the fact that the justice system is totally skewed. So depending on your age and race and color and the accused person's age and race and color, it's all going to go a certain way. You have to testify. You have to deal with people asking you why you were out there, why were you jogging. And then you have to deal with the probability that the person's going to get off the hook. So it's a lot. There's a huge cost to telling. And you have to deal with the people you know suddenly looking at you completely differently. 
So, so it's not it's not easy. Are are our both our legal systems then and legal system and our healthcare system are they barriers to making certain that people know about what you call this vast conspiracy of silence about rape? I don't think they mean to be, but I think they are. For instance, in this country we have we have these really well-developed rape kits, which is the collection of forensic evidence that if somebody walks into the hospital and says, I've been raped, if it's close enough to the fact, you can go in there and you can take swabs, you can do DNA tests, you can do all kinds of tests and save the evidence. That's fantastic. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of rape kits lying in warehouses in this country. They're not a priority. So some, all these women and men have gone through these tests, suffered, and then nothing comes of them. So we're in this position where we have laws that are meant to help us, but then either they don't get implemented or they get implemented with everybody's prejudice in the mix. Um, so it's hard. So I, I hesitate to say that there's somebody on top who's saying, let's get women, let's just make it as hard for them. But that often happens as the result of lack of understanding and lack of caring. I'd like to think it's not deliberate, but sometimes I wonder. You write that you write that rape is the only crime to which people respond by wanting to lock up the victims. I don't think people know about this. Who wants to lock up the victims of rape following a rape? Uh, well, that I was actually referring to my own case um, because I was uh, legally a child when I was raped. I was seventeen, so when we reported to the police, and things were very different that time in India, rape was really even less talked about now. There was no Me Too, there was nothing. Um, So when we reported it to the police, the police really did not want to register a rape case because it would make them look bad. So they tried every trick to get me to not prosecute. And one of the things they did was to say that because I was a minor, it was their legal duty to lock me up for my own protection since the rapists were at large. So if I if I wrote a statement saying that I was filing this complaint about being raped, they were going to that same night take me away and lock me up in a in a juvenile detention home near my place. So that that's what I was talking about. Yeah, and you write about that experience of being in uh, the police station and having to lie about not being raped. You weren't lying about being raped, as so many people make these uh, accusations that people are that women are coming forward with these false accusations of rape. You weren't doing that. You were doing the exact opposite. You were lying about not uh, to say that you are not raped. Why did you lie to say that you are not raped so people can understand the circumstances that you were in? Well, it wasn't actually the police station. It was my house. Um, so okay. what happened is that it uh, it was night, and I was out with a friend, and when we finally managed to escape from them, we came home, and my father had been out hunting for us. And when he came home, he asked me whether I wanted to call the police, and I said, of course. So they came. There were about 15 of them, and they came to the house, and they made things increasingly more difficult for us by they blamed us they were you know wondering what i was doing out there i wasn't dressed like a proper indian girl and then there was this whole remand thing so then when we said for, we don't want to press charges it it just go they wouldn't go because they had to have a report on why they had come to my house 
So the only way that they would go is for me to write down that it was a false alarm. So I wrote down saying that I was out late and nothing happened. It was a false alarm. Why, why do we have this situation with rape where so often the uh, person who is the survivor, they are confronted with either uh, blame that it was their fault or denial uh, by the people who are trying to see if the person was actually the victim of a crime? What does it say to you about rape when so often it's confronted by blaming the victim and denial? You know, I really, I don't know. I've sort of grappled with this question for decades. And I think we don't know as people how to properly place it, how to properly place this crime. So either we act like it's the absolute end of the world, that rape is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. It's worse than death. It's worse than anything. And if that's the case, then if you've been raped and you're walking around, then you weren't raped because you're not acting suitably horrible suitably devastated, whereas if you are walking around and you've been raped and you're actually fine, then it wasn't such a big deal. So it's very difficult to actually treat it like a trauma, like a war wound, where, say, something's wrong with you, something has happened to you, but it's one thing, and you can actually integrate it into the rest of your life. So maybe that's what it is, and maybe for some people, they really don't, can't take on board that how bad it is, and maybe some people just like the system. They like the the underlying assumptions we have that that you know you it, it's okay you take advantage of a woman. It's not such a big deal. So why are you making such a stink about it? You write that rape is the only crime that is so bad that victims are supposed to be destroyed beyond repair by it. Do we expect victims of rape to never overcome it? And are we? right in believing that? can Should we have that kind of sympathy for uh, rape survivors and understand that rape is something that you really never can overcome? I think we should have exactly the amount of sympathy for rape survivors as we would for any other survivor of terrible trauma, where every human being is different. Things happen to all of us that we never get over, and things happen to all of us that we can manage. And it kind of depends on your definition, right, of never get over. Like, I never forgot what happened to me. I wouldn't say I got over it. In the same sense, I wouldn't say I got over the fact that, you know, my father died. Both those things are awful. But here I am. I'm a happy person. I figured it out. I feel bad sometimes. And sometimes I, and often I don't. So I'm not quite sure why we take rape and put it in this entirely separate category and then even as I say that, I realize that it is kind of in a separate category because it's, it's this complicated issue. But we, we just don't, we just, we just refuse to acknowledge that it's kind of related to everything else and that the way people react in life has to do with who they are and who supports them. So... I don't know. I lost track of what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like when you lose track. So uh, you ask, how have we managed to evolve as a species species that is riddled with rape? When did we give ourselves permission to become this way? Sometimes I wonder if we consider bad table manners a worse breach of protocol than forcing a random object up a personal orifice. As EU Bulletin reported this week, 2018's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Dennis McQuige and Iraqi activist Nadia Murad. 
Both laureates bring attention to the use of rape and sexual violence as weapons of war and call the international community for an agenda to target the abuse, including reparations for victims. Is there a connection between living in a world that you describe as riddled with rape and giving permission to live this way and the way we rape is weaponized at war? Is our permission for rape at home the war come home? Sorry, say the last bit again. Is um, is uh, our permission for rape at home, the reason that rape is at home, is it the war come home, the weaponization of rape come home? I think it works both ways, don't you? I think the idea that, that rape is a way to control women and control society permeates every level of society. And so why is it, for instance, in a war, that soldiers are not told, go out and rape men. If you're trying to dishonor men, surely if you went and raped them, it would be worse. But somehow, all through society at every level, from the home to the war to international boardrooms, we have this attitude worldwide that women are the ones who uphold the culture. They're the ones who are the repositories of all that is good in us. And so we go and despoil, supposedly, a woman that's really hitting at the heart of it. So I think they're absolutely related. And then they get very mixed up. That's why in my book I talk about the whole rape-sex connection, which is so difficult because, for instance, in India last in, in January, we had this horrible case of a child being raped and murdered. And it was clearly a political act because the people who did it, they were local thugs and police and landlords, and they... The agenda was to get rid of her Muslim tribal family who lived in the area so they could get their land. But there was this story of how before she was dead, they were hitting her. They were hitting her head with a rock. She was eight years old. And one of the men said, wait before you kill her. I want to have one more chance. So what does that, what does that say? Was it sex? Was it violence? I'm not saying it was sex, but there was some kind of weird, perverted pleasure he was getting out of doing it. So I think they're all really mixed up, and it's very hard to take one away from the other, and we'll continue to be more mixed up if we don't actually have these conversations. You're right. It's easier to feel ashamed than to accept that someone violated us in the most viciously intimate way, and we couldn't do anything about it. Why is it easier to feel shame? Is, is feeling ashamed is it a cop-out? Is the victim avoiding the real issue because it's just easier to blame yourself than it is to other? After all, if it's your problem, you can fix it. If it's their problem, yeah. you can't really do anything about it. So does shame give the victim some agency that otherwise the blame of the other person they won't have? You know, I think so. But um, like I said, I, di- I didn't have much shame. So I, I, did, have, I, did, I did feel guilty that we had been out and that, you know, we, I even chose to go out that evening, I, all those things that one does, even you, which I don't feel would be that different, say, if I'd gone out with a wallet full of money and someone had stolen my wallet, I would probably have felt, oh, my God, that's so stupid to go out down that dark alley. But it wouldn't have been my fault. It would have been the fault of the person who took the money. So I think there is some agency in that, but I don't even know, especially in in my culture in India, if it goes that far, the default feeling you're supposed to feel ashamed because you're supposed to, whether it was your fault or not, is immaterial. You're now spoiled. 
you're now damaged. So you might as well just feel rotten. And then in a way, that whole business of feeling like you can do something about it, I think you really have your finger on it because I, maybe I'm being too nice to them, but a lot of women in my life have said things to me like, oh, I would never let that happen to me. Oh, I would have done this. So I would, and I like to think that it's not because they think I caused it to happen, but because they're comforting themselves and saying, you know, I won't, I'm safe because she did something that I wouldn't do. So I'm hoping it's that. But I think in many cases, it's just plain old, you know, you're an idiot to get raped. You should have stopped it. Last week, we were talking to Michael Denzel Smith about uh, the difficulty of uh, black intellectuals uh, speaking to a white audience and how so often the white gatekeepers, the editors, the managing editors, the people who are booking them for the show, they want all the conversation to focus on the tragedy and violence uh, that is part of black life. And they say that that distracts from the larger conversation. Uh, Michael Denzel Smith was saying that that distracts from the larger conversation that can lead to solutions. So I don't want to make the same mistake here and just view the survivor of rape as a victim. You write the minute you speak, the moment you write your own narrative, the second you open your mouth, you are no longer just a victim. You are taking back some control. It is the opposite of victimhood. Now, a lot of people say when somebody comes forward and talks about whatever tragedy they've you know, witnessed, uh, that they are a victim. So how is speaking up the opposite of victimhood? How is that not victimization? Oh, it is totally the opposite. For one thing, remember, I... I was raped by people who said they would kill me if I ever said a word to anyone. So even just being on this radio show with you, I feel a bit like I'm quite triumphant because here I am and I'm not dead and I'm fine. And the other thing is that, you know, in life, the terrible things that happen to you, they are not good. But if you can learn from them and make something good from them, you're the opposite of a victim. For, for instance, being a parent. Now, I, I don't know if you're a parent, but I, I have a child, and every parent I know worries about their child and something that could happen to them, and one of those things is sexual assault. So obviously I have that worry, but I also feel like I have a great advantage in the sense of, one, I know it, it is survivable, and two, she has me. She ha- she is not growing up with this idea that there's this awful, unknown, terrible thing that might happen to me, and if it happens, my life is over. Because she sees evidence in front of her that it's not over, that you can manage, and you can be fine, and you can make something good out of it. So I absolutely don't agree. Rape is not the only... If I talked about rape morning to night, I wouldn't be a victim. I'd just be a bore. But... <laughs> But I'm, but I don't at all feel like it's victim. Or I think the minute you speak up and you put your own voice into the narrative, you're you're diminishing the voices of the people who you're diminishing the power of the people who want to keep you silent. I think those two who won the Nobel Prize, I think it's fantastic that they won it. I once saw Dennis Mukwege speak on stage, and he's just an outstanding person out there, fixing just fixing things that other people have broken. He's amazing. 
You uh, also, uh, your column that appeared in the New York Times after your uh, decades-old article had been unearthed and went viral, uh, your article in the op-ed, New York Times, followed the 2012 gang rape and murder of Jyoti Singh in India. That, you said, kind of changed the conversation. It made a lot of more people talk about we've seen, as you point out in your article, there's more and more writing now and talking now about rape. How have things changed since since 2012 when it comes to the way rape is perceived in India? Because, you know, GOT was, again, blamed uh, for what had happened to her. So have things changed in the last six years or is this such an old problem that any change is glacial? I don't know. I know that what I do know is that the conversation has changed in the sense of even for me, I'm no longer the only person ever living in India to say she's been raped, which frankly is great. So there's that, and that people can discuss it more. It was just never even talked about. So there's no question that the conversation has changed. You also hear unbelievably ridiculous things that people say, but maybe it's better that they're said than just thought so people can rebut them. But what I don't know is whether the actual reality has changed. I have no idea if a single rape has been prevented. I have no idea if a single relationship has improved because suddenly both the man and the woman see that there's been some terrible power dynamic and they've decided to change it. So, yes, I think the conversation is more open than it was, but I wish I knew if actually things are better. I don't know. And you quote the Indian president's son, an MP himself following the Jyoti Singh uh, gang rape and murder, saying women who are participating in candlelight vigils and those who are protesting have no connection with ground reality. These pretty ladies coming out to protest are highly dented and painted. And you report that on film, one of the rapists said that only about uh, 20% of girls are good. If they go out at night with boys, they are asking for trouble. If they don't want to be killed, they should just uh, lie back and submit. He and his friends were teaching Jyoti a lesson, he said, and her death was an accident. You add, there must be a manual for rapists somewhere. That is exactly what the men who raped me said, that they were teaching me a lesson for my own good. What is that lesson? What, what can we learn about rape by learning what that lesson is supposed to be. So what is that lesson? Well, I can't speak for everyone else, but I know that in my case, and it sounded like in Jyoti's case too, there was this, the lesson was this utter rage of how dare you be out there being free? How dare you be out there with a guy? She was with a man. I was with a man. Um, They didn't care whether the man was your brother, father, whoever. It was just... It was just, I was out there. I wasn't afraid. I was wearing vest. I was wearing jeans, which was unusual at that time. And the lesson was that you have to stay home and you have to be quiet and we're going to teach you. But how do I know they didn't just say that? Maybe they just saw a chance to, they saw a lone girl out there. It was a chance to go and have some fun. And then all that stuff was made up. I have no idea. But they, they certainly were filled with rage. And even the Jyoti Singh's murderer saying it was an accident. I mean, really, you beat the woman to a pulp, you rip out her insides, and then you say it was an accident that she died. It's a bit much. No, I think that it's important to listen to what people say, but also to remember that people say what what they want to say. 
And speaking of uh, horrible leaders, you write that uh, happily the global conversation on this issue is deepening, too. The Me Too campaign has shown a startling spotlight on sexual harassment. This is all happening while the U.S. has a robust champion of sexual abuse for its president. Is Trump being president then good for the conversation about rape and sex abuse? Did it take a Trump to overcome any denial we may have uh, had of rape and sex abuse here in this country? Well, I'd like to say that. On the other hand, people voted for him, and they knew what he was when they voted for him. So I'm really not sure. But I do think that it's galvanized a lot of rage, especially in women, because it's very difficult to see someone like that who's so shameless about the fact that he really denigrates women up there in charge. So I think that it helps to galvanize anger. But I don't know if it's caused it or not. I think this whole issue of rape and women being put down and treated as objects is really older than Trump or you or me or anybody else. No, it takes different forms, but it's just there. Even if we do get people talking about rape, how much more work will it take to get people to talk about rape by family members or acquaintances? If the majority of rape is unreported because it's by a family member or acquaintance, do we still only know even far less than we thought we knew about the real level of rape taking place today? Is there a a global rape epidemic, especially among family members and acquaintances, that's being ignored? I think so. I think there is. Uh, And I also think that nothing's going to change until we actually have these, you know, it's not some huge thing. We Yes, we need laws and we need all kinds of systematic massive changes, but basically I think the thing we need more than anything is to, when when we're having dinner with our kids, that it's a topic of conversation, that we teach them that sex is really for about pleasure and not not to exert power, that girls and boys equally deserve to have agency in sex, that it's not okay to disrespect someone if they don't want to do something, you stop. These are not huge things, but they are the things I feel that lead to a lot of the abuse that happens. And then I also think that we need to make sure that that when that we have the mechanisms in place for when someone does talk and speak up, that we make it safe for them to do so. You know, that someone shouldn't feel that if I tell someone, they're all going to freak out and fall apart because no child wants to have that kind of power. You write how in your earlier days of uh, politicization, you understood that uh, no means no, but you then write, uh, now I realize that, well, sometimes yes doesn't mean yes. How does yes sometimes not mean yes? Well, for one thing, you have to look at the circumstances, right? Like someone could even say that that I said yes. I had a knife at my throat and I was going to be killed. So I said, okay, go ahead. So does that mean yes? Not really. You know, under what circumstances do you have consent? You have all the countries in the world in which marital rape is still not a crime. So yes doesn't mean yes then because... There is no option for no. There's also the whole dating culture where there's still this attitude that if, you know, if, you, if the boy has maybe spent enough money on taking you to dinner, you owe him something. So in that case, does yes mean yes? On the other hand, if you say yes, but you meant no, is that a rape? He heard yes. It's very complicated. So it's not, it, it was 
very satisfying to march around with those placards saying yes means yes and no means no. And I think there's a place for that because ultimately it should all be clear. But my point is that it's not always clear. I've got one last question for you, Sohaila. Sohaila Abdullali is author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Her January 2013 op-ed in the New York Times, I Was Wounded, My Honor Wasn't, Broke Readership Records. She's also the author of the 1998 best-selling novel, The Mad Woman of Jogar, and author of another novel, 2010's Year of the Tiger. She also wrote the children's book series Rangbibi and Langra. She has coordinated the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, worked as a journalist in Philadelphia, Boston, and Bombay, as well as having conducted sleep research in a psychiatric hospital, working as an industrial spy, ghostwriting, and whatever else she can do to pay the bills. I just love that part of your bio. Find out more about Sohila at Sohila Link or SohilaInc.com, SohilaInc.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Sohila Abdullali. One last question for you, and it's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. The, <laughs> I'm going to hang up. <laughs> the Me Too movement started way back in 2006. Tarana uh, Burke started it back then. But in, you know, uh, it really took off over the last few years with uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein and other uh, accusations that have been uh, taking place. You write that silence is powerful, but not as powerful as words, but words are also a luxury. It takes courage for anyone at all to speak up about sexual abuse in any form. For many, many women, speaking up is lethal. An established rich white Hollywood star deserves kudos for speaking out. A maid in a Mumbai apartment who is counting on her salary to support her children has to think a lot harder about outing her employer if he comes into her room at night. When we celebrate Hollywood stars telling their Me Too stories, we are celebrating not only their individual strength and power to tell their story, but maybe inadvertently or unintentionally, we're kind of celebrating their privilege. Do we question the accusations of sexual abuse uh, made by, for instance, this maid any more or less than we do when it comes from a powerful, privileged Hollywood star? You're saying, do we or should we? Do we? I think we question both. I don't think there's a single woman on earth who has stood up and said, I was sexually abused without having a whole line of people saying, what do you mean? What happened? Why didn't you say it then? Why did you still go out with him? Why are you this? Why are you that? So I don't, if you take away all the trappings, it's the same. Denialism then uh, crosses class lines. I think so. I think it's easier for some women to live with it because they have more of an out or other livelihoods or other ways to lead their lives. Whereas for some people, they're living the only life they they can lead. But I really, it would be nice to think that there's someone who's exempt from all our, all our doubts and fears and ridiculous misconceptions. But I don't think there is. Look at the news. Well, I just got to tell you, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I like to learn when I'm working on this show, and you have taught me a great deal. And this week, we're announcing the uh, my favorite 18 books that we featured here on This Is Hell. And unfortunately, I made that list uh, on Monday before I started reading your book, because this would have definitely <laughs> made my list. This really is an incredible book, and I think that everybody should read this because we all need to be having more of a conversation about rape. Thank you so much for being on our show, and I hope that you believe this was a sensible conversation about rape. I do, and I have one suggestion. You could make it 19 books this year. (laughs) 
All right, I'll be waiting for the check in think the mail. Think about it. I'll yes. be thinking about it. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you. I'm not as smart as you think, and yes, I do realize some of you think I'm an idiot. This is hell. The cost of the post-9-11 U.S. wars is a lot more than you think. It's higher than you think when it comes to money, and it will be far more expensive in the future. And it's far more costly in human lives to not only the U.S., but the entire world. And it doesn't help when we're paying for all these wars on credit. We'll learn how starting, how startling... The how startling high, excuse me, I got a cough. We'll learn how startling high the costs of U.S. wars are when we speak with political scientist Nita C. Crawford, co-director of the Eisenhower Study Group, Costs of War Study, including her two most recent reports, Human Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars and United States Budgetary Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars. Nita is a professor of political science and department chair at Boston University. It's time for listener feedback. Two weeks ago, we shared an email from Khalil in Oakland who was upset about an interview Alex recently played during a Best Of edition of This Is Hell while I was out sick. Khalil wrote, uh, Khalil in Oakland wrote, I am very grateful for your work, but oh my God, I hated that interview with Roy Scranton and not in a good way. I think he is a determinist and possibly a secret nihilist. And in case you didn't know, that's not the same as good old fashioned hopeless realism. Roy Scranton has no soul. I bet he listens to dubstep and is a bad tipper. Don't feed this trollish assertion that there may be no such thing as free will. I blame Alex because I would have missed that interview had he not dredged it up for staff picks. Oh, and I blame your niece or whoever got you sick, too. Anyway, we're still friends and forgive you, Khalil in Oakland. Now, this week, we got this email from Peter. I, too, would like to blame Alex for causing me to spend $35 purchasing Royce Granton's excellent book, We're Doomed, Now What?, along with the book he mentioned during the in- interview, Radical Hope, after listening to the interview. So I guess that's... One vote for Roy, Roy Scranton and one against. Last, uh, a couple weeks ago, we also shared an email from a listener, Jonah, who wants to volunteer on This Is Hell. Jonah heard me read his email on air and replied, Hi, Chuck. Thank you for reading my email on air the other day. I wasn't expecting that, and it was very cool to all of a sudden hear words that I wrote being read on the radio. I'm very interested in being a volunteer. How can I get involved? So Alex and Jonah have been in a conversation, and I told Alex that he can get involved. Any listener can, and that's by emailing myself or Alex. You can email Alex, alex at thisishell.com, or you can email me, chuck at thisishell.com. We are definitely seeking volunteers. Who wouldn't want to work with America's leading intellectual. Also, during last week's, or a couple weeks ago, uh, during the show, I mentioned my bizarre Canadian Football League fetish and how I love that during the championship game, the Grey Cup, a local indigenous leader starts the opening ceremonies by welcoming Whitey to their native lands. Adam writes, longtime listener, logo redesigner, and social media pester. Oh, this is Adam Medley. First time emailer. Listening to last weekend's episode of This Is Hell, Put a smile on my uh, face listening to your account of the 106th Grey Cup and your interest in Canadian football. If I wasn't out of the country that weekend, I would have been able to hear the big game from my house as I live just a couple of blocks from Edmonton's Commonwealth Stadium. Regarding the land acknowledgement made by the First Nations chief before the game, 
I don't know how long that has been a part of the Great Cup, but they've certainly become a more common part of sporting events, uh, government functions, and public events across Canada over the last few years as part of the reconciliation process between the Canadian government and settler population and the First Nations subjected to its colonialism. There has been some debate amongst Indigenous Canadians on the meaningfulness of these land acknowledgments and whether it amounts to empty rhetoric. Uh, but they've only become more widespread in Canadian public life. I don't know if the debate over land acknowledgments in Canada may be too particular a topic for the broader listenership of This Is Hell, but there's been another discussion unfolding in the press here in Canada and the halls of government over the past week that really brings to light the crimes such land acknowledgments may, as some argue, seem to gloss over the forced sterilization of indigenous women throughout Canada as recently as 2017. Here's a short Washington Post of all media outlets editorial by Nikita Longman that puts the recent uh, revelations into a broader context in an Aboriginal People's Television Network uh, investigation, interviewing three survivors back in January 2017. I looked for a longer form piece on the subject, but the story is currently breaking week to week, and most of what's been written has been conventional news reports in the Canadian press and mainstream media outlets. As a white settler myself who's woefully uneducated surrounding Canada's past and present, I feel out of place bringing this to your attention, but Canada always seems to get a pass on these issues by international media, and I guess I'm one of the uh, many who like to point out every chance I get that Canada, Trudeau, isn't so great when compared to the U.S. and Trump. There are a wealth of predominantly young writers, activists, and academics doing a lot to move the conversation forward in Canada. So if it's a topic you're interested in, I can point you towards some writers or authors I similarly haven't read enough. Uh, Bringing it back to football, Inuit nations have been asking Edmonton's CFL team to change their name from the Eskimos for years, citing its offensive nature. Maybe Edmonton and Washington's NFL franchise can hold an interleague exhibition match to determine which country is the most racist. Thanks for continuing to put out great radio week in and week out. P.S. If you're playing, if you're plan, planning on having another 20th anniversary party art exhibition next year, I'd love to participate. I'm working on some new colleges uh, or new collages. Sorry, older examples of which you can find at my website, AdamMedley.com. Would be thrilled to mail some art to you next July for your party in Chicago. Adam. Thanks for the white settler insight, and yes, we will be bugging you about next summer's anniversary show, and we'll be looking forward to having you participating within it. Time to announce three more of our favorite 18 books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list at thisishell.com right now. Our next three books are about rights, wrongs, and more rights. What's Wrong with Rights, Social Movements, Law, and Liberal Imaginations by Rada D'Souza. The... uh, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism by Gerald Horn, and Not Enough Human Rights in an Unequal World by Samuel Moyne. Rada explains that what's wrong with rights is the whole campaign is a distraction from getting what we want. We don't want the right to clean water or healthy food. We want clean water and healthy food. In the Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, Gerald shows how if it wasn't for slavery, there would have never been a British Empire or a United States of America. In fact, capitalism would have never succeeded. Getting back to what's wrong with rights, a major problem, as Samuel Moyne points out in his book, Not Enough, is that human rights, as defined today by the human rights industry, if you will, is not about equality, and that's why equality continues to go unchecked. You can find out about all these books and all 
of our 18 favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2018 by going to thisishell.com. This week's question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we are featuring during the next hour of this week's show, Jesse Baring's Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the untold costs of the post-9-11 wars and blood and treasure, how California's water politics can lead to war with Iran, a potentially even more difficult conversation than the one we had on rape earlier, this one's going to be on suicide. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin sees the glass as entirely full. All that stuff, plus more of our favorite books featured on This Is Hell, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we're doing at patreon.com slash thisishell. The question from hell, we got some listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, and what's happening on next week's final episode of This Is Hell for 2018. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell as Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. The costs of post-9-11 wars have been devastating for the United States, both financially and the cost in human lives. Unfortunately, until now, we didn't have a very clear or good reckoning of what those true costs really were, and we still don't. But we are getting at least a better understanding, thanks to the work of our next guest, political science scientist Nita C. Crawford, is co-director of the Eisenhower Study Group, Cost of War Study, including the two most recent reports, human cost of the post-9-11 wars, and United States budgetary costs of the post-9-11 wars. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nita. Uh, pleasure to be here. Follow Costs of War on Twitter, at Costs of War. And you can find out more about the study at costsofwar.org. All told, you write, between 480,000 and 507,000 people have been killed in the United States post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. This tally of the uh, counts and estimates of direct deaths caused by war violence does not include the more than 500,000 deaths from the war in Syria raging since 2011, which the U.S. joined in August. August 2014. Yet in nearly every news report I saw on your study, the headline talked about the report that was released a few days earlier on the financial costs of post-9-11 wars being just shy of $6 trillion. Were you surprised in any way about the manner in which uh, the two studies were reported in the news, that the financial uh, you know, report got all the press, but the human cost one didn't seem to get as much press? Well, that's usually the case. Um, we've been releasing these reports, and I've been writing them since 2011. And usually the work that I do that's related to the U.S. budget gets much more coverage because I think um, it's much more vivid uh, to people here, rather the deaths and injury abroad. And even uh, to U.S. soldiers is less well covered. That's really surprising. Are those numbers less well covered today than they uh, were in the past? Is there more secrecy now around the number of people who have died or have been wounded in war, Americans especially? Is there more secrecy now than there was, let's say, uh, a few years ago? 
Well, the only thing that's different on that is um, there is secrecy, actual secrecy, about the number of Afghan soldiers and police who were killed. The U.S. used to report those numbers about the war in Afghanistan. And a little over a year ago, they stopped letting the special inspector general uh, for Afghanistan reconstruction report those numbers because it's politically sensitive in Afghanistan. And then there were a couple of years in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, when the Iraqi government was told not to report the number of civilians that the U.S. suggested that they not report the number of civilians killed. And there were already um, many ways in which those numbers were fuzzy, difficult to get, and that made it more difficult to get for a time. So there is a sort of better accounting, I think, of some of these wars more recently in terms of the human cost and the cost in uh, money. It's uh, due to the work, basically, of a lot of non-governmental organizations which have tried to both, uh, you know, on the ground verify these accounts of incidents that you get in the media and also try to gather them uh, from governments in their reporting. But as you, as your report states, you didn't include uh, Syria. You also don't include other sites of major U.S. Oper- military operations uh, like Libya, Yemen, Somalia. Why not include those military confrontations? Well, it, it, it's, uh, it, I, I can't report what I'm only guessing at, right? <laughs> and, I, and that's what I would be doing in some of these instances. For instance, in Yemen, the United States has been engaged there with Saudi Arabia for a number of years, both providing air refueling and weapons and uh, some intelligence support. And about 10,000 Yemeni people have been killed in that conflict. Um, there are other places where the numbers are in the thousands, but I, I couldn't, um, in good conscience, report things that I'm just not sure about. I am fairly confident of the numbers I do report. But there's this organization called, I think it's the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, and they're uh, constantly being quoted as having the numbers for the people who have died. Are those numbers not necessarily confirmable? Are they not necessarily accurate? How much of a sense do we have of the actual Mm -hmm. accurate numbers, not just in Syria, but anywhere where it comes to war? Right. Okay. So first of all, Throughout history, it's been difficult to know the number of civilians killed in any conflict. And often civilians are the deliberate target of militaries for various reasons. There are various theories like, for example, the idea that if you hurt civilians enough, they'll get their government to stop. Or uh, if you hurt civilians enough, they can't participate in the mobilization for war. Um, And they'll uh, be so demoralized that they'll not participate uh, or they'll call for uh, an end to conflict. Um, those theories are all wrong for the most part historically, but people have them and that's why civilians are often attacked or held hostage. Um, so it's not a new problem, however, uh, understanding the number of civilian ki- civilians killed in any particular conflict. It's always been the case. Um, you know better in more developed countries, that is countries with accurate censuses. In Afghanistan, in Iraq, there have been no accurate census. Uh, counts for decades. And some of these other countries, there are not accurate census counts, and what we have are estimates. And now the Syrian Observatory does brilliant work, as does 
an organization called Air Wars, and they're keeping track of, Air Wars is keeping track, for example, of the number of confirmed and suspected uh, people killed and injured in airstrikes by the United States, its allies, and Russia and Syria. Those numbers are pretty good, and they're an indicator of the intensity of the war that's being waged there from the air. But we don't know really about much of what's going on on the ground. I think the Syrian observatory numbers are, are probably as close as we're going to get right now, and they may be as close as we'll ever get. And the same in Afghanistan and Iraq. The United Nations has done excellent work since 2008 in tracking civilians killed. But as I said, as these wars have intensified in the most recent years, they've stopped reporting the number of soldiers and police killed. Uh, that is, people working alongside the U.S. and its allies and trying to get al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and other militants. So we don't know the total toll. We have uh, an estimate. You also write in your other report on the financial cost of the war. The United States has appropriated and is obligated to spend an estimated $5.9 trillion in current dollars on the war on terror through fiscal year 2019, including direct war and war-related spending and obligations to future spending on past 9-11 war veterans. The number... Uh, differs substantially from the Pentagon's estimates of the costs of the post-9-11 wars because it includes not only war appropriations made to the Department of Defense, but also includes spending across the federal government that is a a consequence of these post-9-11 wars. Is the U.S. then purposely under-reporting the true financial cost of the post-9-11 wars, or is it the media that's misreporting it by only focusing on the defense budget as the only military-related budget? Well, it's only the overseas contingency operation um, appropriations which are called war spending. And that's not even all of Department of Defense spending. Okay, so there's there's a big uh, gap in our understanding of how war works and the consequences of war, which is why we did the cost of war project. Um, For example, you might think that uh, the United States would raise taxes and sell war bonds to pay for war. We didn't do that in this war. Or you might think that once wars stop, you stop paying for them. That's never been the case. Are you always paying for war after wars end for a couple of reasons? One is there's a reset, costs of buying new equipment, but there's also the cost of veterans care, which, for example, we're not yet seeing the peak of the cost for the Vietnam War veterans care. Think about that. Decades after that war has ended, the the costs are still rising. We won't see the peak in the number of post-9-11 war veterans getting services from the VA until about 2040. So um, what we've done with the Cost of War Project is, is just help people understand that The consequences and the costs of wars are much larger than what you send uh, out to pay for activities at what they call the pointy end of the spear, the part that does the damage. The costs of any conflict sort of ripple through the federal budget. And we're also including the expenses for homeland security. So people understand that homeland security is actually um, part of what defends the United States against what might be or might not be 
an imminent threat. And we could talk about whether or not there's a threat at another point. So that's that's why we did the study. I don't think that um, there's a purposeful evasion of, let's say, a true accounting of the war by the government. Um, Trump himself says we spent what he called during the campaign five or six trillion, and now he sometimes says seven trillion on wars in the Middle East. Again, that's not quite right, but he says it. I don't think that they're trying to hide the cost. What I think is true, though, is most of us are woefully underprepared or unprepared by our educations to understand what the U.S. military does, um, how much of the uh, discretionary budget is Department of Defense money, and then how much of other budgets are related to war missions, like the veterans budget. So the three largest federal agencies are the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, and Veterans Affairs. So when you add it all up, it's quite a big chunk. We just have to think about war and its um, consequences in in a broader frame. That's what we've been trying to do. But there are those who see increasing the defense budget, for instance, as President Trump was just doing, uh, they see that as uh, patriotic. They see that as very political. They, they can wrap themselves in the flag and show themselves as supporters of the troops. How much do you think if we, if the uh, American public was thoroughly well informed about even the long-term costs of war, which seem to be very uh, not very well understood, how far do you think that would go? Having the knowledge of actually how much we do spend on wars, how far would that go to us not being as supportive of going to war? Because it seems like people don't seem to really care about the defense budget constantly going up, that it actually wins you votes. Well, I think there's a a kind of conflation of patriotism with people going out to put themselves at risk for you. I don't think that we necessarily have to believe that. It can be just as patriotic to say that uh, we should be defending our borders in a way that's actually self-defense. And it could be just as patriotic to say that we shouldn't send people to places where they've been at stalemate, such as Afghanistan, for about a decade. We're losing ground. Stalemate is a kind way of saying we're losing ground in Afghanistan. It's not winnable. Um, So that is patriotic to say that it's time to think about the connection between what our goals are, the strategy, and the costs and consequences. No public policy policy should go on for a decade and a half without some accounting of whether or not the benefits, if there are any, are worth the costs and the risks. And we haven't seen a real good accounting of that. But the other thing I think you're getting at is whether or not the American public understand the consequences of such high military spending. I think it's really hard to wrap your head around it. But one thing that uh, um, people who are in favor of military spending sometimes say is it makes jobs. And if we don't spend as much money, then we won't uh, have as many jobs in those in- industries. And I think that one thing that you could just sort of set to rest right now is military spending does produce jobs, but not as much as spending in other things. If you spend a million dollars and we're spending $70 billion this year on the wars, but if you just spent a million dollars on defense industries, you get seven jobs. If you spent that same million on something else like healthcare, you'd get 14 jobs. So multiply the 14 jobs per billion that we're spending. That's 14,000 jobs. 
or for the 70 billion, that's 980,000 jobs, right? And that's not the most productive thing that we do in terms of creating jobs. That is healthcare spending. Secondary education produces 19 jobs per million. Again, we're spending 70 billion for fiscal year uh, 2019, and that's gonna that could have created 1.3 million jobs. Right, so military spending is not a productive way to help an economy. In fact, it's it's destructive because it takes resources away from the things you really need. And the biggest threat to America right now may be climate change. In fact, it probably is. It will kill more people than the attacks on 9-11 did. And it will certainly put at risk coastal economy. Just look at the latest report, again, by the U.S. government of the consequences of climate change. And you'll see that we really need to be diverting our resources into green energy and preparing our agricultural systems and other systems for what's coming. You ask for, obviously, and your study is about trying to get more transparency when it comes to the costs of war, uh, the costs of the post-9-11 wars that the United States has engaged in. But, uh, how, you know, and we do need that kind of transparency when it comes to costs, but we really can't figure out if those costs are enough if or are adequate or too much if we don't know what the benefits of those costs are. Right. And I don't really yeah. hear, there doesn't seem to be much transparency when it comes to those benefits. We're just told that we're being protected from some group of nebulous terrorists who may we may or may not have stopped coming into the United States. We may or may not have set them up. We have no idea what these things are. So is just yeah. as much a problem when it comes to transparency of costs it, do we are we having just as much a problem when it comes to transparency of benefits of the war on terror? You you ask a really important question. When you look at, for example, the Department of Homeland Security, they'll tell you how many container ships that they've searched, but they don't tell you what they found. Right? It's like knowing how many nails are in your house, but you don't know how many rooms you have. Right? I don't need to know how many nails I have in my house. I need to know if the structure is sound. And it's it's the same thing with um, the war in Afghanistan. At some points, we've been told that there were several thousand terrorists in Afghanistan. Then we were told that the numbers went down. And then more recently, we've been told the numbers went up. So it's not about, in fact, whether or not the strategy is working. It may actually be counterproductive, right? In other words, the things that we're doing to make ourselves more secure may, in fact, be creating people who don't like us and are willing to fight against us. So I, I don't know if the right question is effectiveness. I wonder is how much is this strategy actually hurting us? But in terms of homeland security, I think we need much more understanding of what are the threats that they've identified? How have they dealt with them? Is the money that is being spent on homeland security for these counterterror missions actually what's accomplishing the work that needs to be done in, in terms of protecting United States, if that's the case, then we need to really rethink this tremendously expensive set of military adventures in not just Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Pakistan, but in, in dozens of other countries. In fact, we don't even know how many countries we're in because that's secret, right? So, yes, 
we need to understand this better. And we certainly need to understand effectiveness if these strategies are, in fact, effective. So uh, we uh, went into the uh, post-9-11 wars. We didn't raise taxes. We cut taxes. We didn't issue bonds. Instead, we are doing all of these wars on credit, which is going to make them a lot more expensive than the wars would have been had we issued bonds or raised taxes instead of cutting taxes and not issuing bonds. So uh, when, how... Is this unprecedented? Is this and like and, and who's making money off of our interest on these loans? Um, well, it is unprecedented. In every prior war, going back to the Revolutionary War, people have been asked to or told, "You need to pony up, you know, give to the government, pay taxes," or they've been asked to buy war bonds. And this is the first set of wars where uh, they haven't actually raised taxes, as you noted. There was a brief period when you could buy Patriot bonds, but those bonds disappeared after a couple of years. Um, and I'm sure they've come to maturity by now, probably. I don't really know. There weren't that many sold. But you're right. This is a credit card war, and the costs are mounting in terms of just interest payment. So We've already paid $716 billion, I think actually more, to, to pay interest on the borrowing for these wars. Now, if you go back to 2001, the United States was in budget surplus. After the wars, the United States went, the wars began, 2001, 2003, all these other activities across the globe that are associated with the war on terror and increased homeland security spending, the United States went into deficit. We've been in deficit spending every year since 9-11. Now, deficit spending isn't good, so and it's not sustainable. That's why the U.S. borrows. The U.S. borrows internally from other parts of the government and pays back those parts like Social Security, for instance, with uh, that pays the interest on that borrowing. The United States also borrows from other countries. China, Japan, uh, and anybody else who buy U.S. bonds. Okay, so when the um, United States has to pay, let's say somebody, some country calls in the loans, not just for U.S. military spending, but all of the, the borrowing we've, we've done, the United States is in a precarious position, but the world economy would be in a precarious position if that happened. So it's unlikely that all that debt will be called at once. But it is really damaging to have so much money just servicing a large debt. It's, uh, it's like as if I, I put $20,000 in my credit card and all I did was pay $200 a month. The, the debt's not going away. And I don't have that $200 a month um, to do something else that I could do much more, uh, which would be much more productive for me. We have been speaking with Nita Crawford. She is a political scientist and co-director of the Eisenhower Study Group's Costs of War study, including her two most recent reports, Human Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars and United States Budgetary Costs of the Post-9-11 Wars. Nita is a professor of political science and department chair at Boston University. One last question for you, Nita, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. 
You write, one could argue that the war in Afghanistan is at a stalemate, as you were saying, even as the U.S. is winding down its operations in Iraq and Syria, having ostensibly destroyed much of the threat ISIS posed to the region. Yet there is no strategy to end the wars other than more of the same, in the hope that one day Iraqi and Afghan security forces will be able to fend for themselves. In addition, the U.S. has escalated its involvement with wars and counterterror operations in Africa and Yemen, nor is there a strategy for responsibly paying for these wars. So, what does it reveal to you about these wars when there appears to be no post-war plan? And by definition, as long as there is no post-war plan, are these wars endless? Well, the American people can say no, and that's what should happen with empires. Now and then, people say we've spent enough. Uh, we've got 300,000 American soldiers with traumatic brain injuries. We've, that's enough. We should say enough. Let's get out. So the wars don't have to be endless, but the strategy doesn't yet call for a way to end. That's what we need to push for. We need to push for a conclusion to the post-9-11 wars. Nita, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, People can find out more about the Costs of War studies by going to costsofwar.org. And in the future, we would love to have you back on to keep us updated as to the continually rising cost of war. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was really, really high. This is hell. Okay, get this. You know that bag of wonderful brand pistachios you're eating? Yes, those delicious pistachios are why we may go to war with Iran. More accurately, we may engage in conflagration with Iran over... California's water politics and the small number of families who control the state like a junta. We'll find out what the pistachio wars are all about when we have the return of investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who has been reading or has been working on a new movie, Pistachio Wars, Killing California for a Snack Food. Alex, what did you share this week on social media? Uh, One thing that I thought was really great was a big ProPublica report on the gutting of the IRS by past guest Jesse Isinger. And uh, instead of just applauding the gutting of the IRS. I think what's really interesting about it is it's how it's refocused uh, to now go after poor people. So, uh, yeah, is that great? Good luck, poor people. You know, uh, I, I was talking to somebody who was involved with audit one time and they said, oh yeah, we uh, go after poor people because they don't have the money to pay for an attorney. And so that way we don't have to deal with some big companies, attorneys. That's just too much of a hassle. So we'll just avoid the rich people and go after the poor. Yeah, I think that piece said that people making under $20,000 a year were the second highest targeted group by the IRS. This is why I'm audited on a weekly basis. People really want to know what I'm up to. Also, I shared a Middle East Eye report on Israeli racism that really pissed someone off from This Is Hell's Past. I won't get get into that. Uh, But I got so mad that he called you stupid in the comments. It's it's me, not you. Anyway, but then I I was going to offer to fight him. uh, But then I realized that you wouldn't get mad about being called stupid because you call yourself stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really care. Uh, But don't test me, Randy. Uh, And then uh, also I shared one piece uh, from a website I've been really liking a lot called Communists in Situ. Situ? I don't know how to... In situ, uh, uh, which I first found about because I think maybe Pavlos Rufos is uh, affiliated with them. But there was a big article called The Roundabout Riots, 
that talks about the uh, yellow vest movement and the historical condition of the bread riot. That was really good. I really liked that a lot. I thought it was just people writing about roundabouts because I hate roundabouts. Yeah, in Evanston, uh, there's roundabouts with stop signs <laughs> around them. It doesn't seem uh, it doesn't seem right. <laughs> I hate driving. Uh, also on Instagram, I posted a uh, fun picture of someone's back uh, back door that has a Santa saying, "This is hell." <laughs> so I uh, keep those stickers coming. It's always real fun to post those from people. Uh, you can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 190 respondents so far, we have the highest rating possible, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell and uh, leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. Like these five-star ratings we received this week, Vern writes, great interviews, really witty and insightful, nice cross-section of guests and subjects covered, definitely recommend This Is Hell. We got a five-star rating from the appropriately named Damien as well, who says, Unvarnished truth, need I say more? Unvarnished truth, need I say more? And we also got five stars from William, who wants to know, Who drank my bong water? WTF. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do, and leave a comment. I'll read your comment on air. Time to announce three more of our favorite 18 books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list right now at thisishell.com. B.S. Jobs, A Theory by David Graeber. B.S. Jobs, A Theory by David Graeber. Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor by Virginia Eubanks. The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and its solutions by Jason Hickel. In BS Jobs, David Graeber describes how our economy, our society, our world, our very lives are being propped up by meaningless work that does nothing but keep us busy. One of every two people listening right now either finds their work meaningless or isn't certain if their job truly is BS or not. In BS Jobs, David explains what life is like when we can't even tell our friends what we do for a living, because to be honest, we're really not sure. Meanwhile, in Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality, we learn inequality is getting a lot worse because we've automated inequality. We've taken the human factor out of determining who gets what resources. In effect, we've replaced the social worker with data collection and algorithmic analysis and tore down the 19th century poorhouse to build a digital poorhouse that is even worse in its unfeeling callousness that allows us to shirk all responsibility in our own role in creating poverty. And speaking of that role in creating poverty, if all of that isn't hellish enough, Jason Hickel's The Divide in his book, we find out that global equality and poverty are the fault of and purposely caused by the West and global North. And even after accounting for all the foreign aid the U.S. and West brag about, the richest nations still take far more from the poorest than they give. Foreign aid is a new form of colonialism. At least that's what Jason argues. In his book, The Divide, find Jason's book and all those books on this year's 18 best books of 2008 by going to thisishell.com. This week's question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us 
You are beautiful. All replies get on get read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we are featuring following our next guest, which is Jace, Jesse Baring's Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Again, the question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you're beautiful? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen after our next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Keeping Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, how California's water politics can lead to war with Iran. A potentially even more difficult conversation than the one we had earlier on rape. This one will be on suicide. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin sees the glass as entirely full. All that stuff, plus, like I said, more of the best books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. We'll tell you what's happening on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell, some for sharing the show online. We'll tell you what's happening on next week's final edition of This Is Hell for 2018. There will be a best-of version the following two weeks. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. This is not the media. This is hell. We're going to war with Iran over pistachios. Okay, maybe not. But the fantastically wealthy Californians who control the state's water and has convinced and have convinced the public that a fictional water crisis actually exists wouldn't be all that upset if the U.S. did go to war with Iran. Here to explain why, investigative journalist Yasha Levin has been working on a new movie, Pistachio Wars, Killing California for a Snack Food. It promises to be a groundbreaking documentary about Beverly Hills billionaires, marketing madness, water privatization, and war with Iran. Welcome back to This is Hell, Yasha. Hey, what's going on? I'm glad to be back. This is Yasha's fourth appearance on This is Hell and uh, his second this year. You may remember Yasha being on most recently back in July to talk about his Baffler article, all effed up Silicon Valley's AstroTurf privacy shakedown. And in February, we spoke with Yasha about his book, Surveillance Valley. You can find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com and more about Yasha and how to participate in his Kickstarter for this new movie, Pistachio Wars, by going to yasha11.com. You write, for the past three years, I've been working with filmmaker Rowan Wernham on a documentary that investigates how a small group of billionaires have taken control of California's water. They have used that control to drain rivers, fuel real estate bubbles, build vast plantations in the middle of a desert, and left a trail of abuse, pollution, and environmental collapse behind them. How aware are Californians of what has happened to their water supply? Why are they so easily suckered into this scam where they believe that there actually is a water crisis? Uh, yeah, I mean, people are not aware at all about uh, water in California, where it comes from, who controls it, um, how it gets there, and, and, and really who uses it. Because, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I've lived in California for a big chunk of my life. Uh, I lived, grew up in San Francisco. I lived in L.A. I lived all over the place in California. And, you know, it's like every couple of years, it seems like there's a new crisis, right? There's a new water crisis. There's a new drought, and everyone's told to conserve. Everyone's told to stop watering their lawns. Everyone's told to put in, put in these low-flush toilets, uh, these really uh, low-volume low, um, shower heads, you know, where you can't really rinse, rinse the soap off your body. 
And it's all on it's all on people, right? It's all on people who live in cities. They're told to conserve. They're told to be the ones. Don't even order water at a restaurant unless you're going to drink the whole the whole cup. That's what you're told, right? I mean, you have restaurants doing that, saying that we're not serving water automatically because there's a drought on, and so we're trying to conserve. But the fact of, of the matter is that in California, people, you know, people who live and breathe and walk around on two feet most of the time, uh, but not all of them do that. Um, they only use, and we only use, 20% of the water supply, maximum. You know, that's a, that's a maximum amount of water that people use in cities. The rest of the water is used uh, predominantly by agriculture and agribusiness. And big, big, powerful corporations that are growing all sorts of things out in the, in the valley. And so if you remove all people from the state of California, everyone, right? If there's a, suddenly a, a plague or some kind of, you know, uh, trans-dimensional shift that happens that suddenly everyone disappears into the void. In California, you'll only achieve 20% uh, reduction in water usage, right? And so when you consider, you know, not ordering water at a restaurant, uh, unless you're going to drink the whole cup, you know, that's a, a fraction of a percent of a percent, you know, of a percent. So you're, well, people are, all the focus is on, on people and our personal choices and the sort of urban water users. Uh, and there's no focus almost at all on um, how water is being used by agribusinesses. Uh, and what are they actually using that water for? Are, are they using it for um, crops um, that are beneficial to society, that are, are necessary to society? Or are they using it to grow French foods or ridiculous foods uh, only for their own personal profit? And when you actually drill down to it, you realize that for the most part, that's exactly exactly what's happening. Um, you you know these really powerful farmers are growing snack foods like pistachios um, that are mostly exported and not even used in America. Um, but they're and they're doing it in California in the middle of a drought in a state that's completely um, sucked dry of water. You know all the rivers have been dammed. Um, there's a collapse. You know all across the state and the ecosystems that depend on freshwater systems. And so they're extracting all this water for kind of to grow useless produce that is not really necessary for survival. And so, um, and so people don't really know that because, well, it's, I don't know, people don't really, our people are disconnected from farming and the farming happens where people don't live. And so the farming happens in that kind of gray zone, dark area between San Francisco and LA. And if anybody ever goes there, you know, they're, they're trying to get through there as fast as possible, right? They're, they're putting the pedal to the metal and trying to get to where they're going. And so no one really knows what's going on in this, in this heart of California, in the Central Valley. Um, and that's where sort of it all happens. But people are t- totally divorced from it. And so, um, and so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because in California, everything that's worthwhile or kind of important depends on water that comes from somewhere else. Um, and so, and, and so you have this, you have this strange paradox where, uh, every, every major city depends on importing water from another part of the state or even sometimes from another, from another state altogether. And yet the people who depend on that water for their, for, for their life, for their livelihoods, for their, for the civil, for their civilization have no idea where it comes from or what really sustains them. And so you have this, you have this very strange, uh, world where no one really knows uh, anything about the most important resource in California and who controls it. Yeah. Uh, you write that at the center of pistachio wars are two Beverly Hill bil- Hills billionaires. 
Stuart and Linda Resnick. Now, the Resnick business is the wonderful company, and sadly, when I was doing the writing and research for this interview, I was eating pistachios from the wonderful company. Not that that will ever happen again, Yasha, now that I read your article, but I know uh, consumer activism has very limited success, but won't me not eating wonderful company pistachios make a huge dent in the whole effort? Isn't Can't we just all start boycotting wonderful company pistachios and the problem's going to be solved? Um, no, uh, no, because even if, you know, let's say in America, the domestic supply or domestic demand for pistachios um, craters and no one's buying them because of, let's say, a very sustained boycott effort, which is going to, you know, which is in itself almost impossible to, to imagine anyone really caring about this. Um, uh, there is a really healthy uh, international market. And in fact, the demand for uh, pistachios globally it outstrips the supply of pistachios. And that's why right now there's a huge commodity boom. There's a bubble essentially in, in pistachio prices. And that's why. And so what the Resnicks would do and what everybody else in the industry would do that, that grows pistachios in, in California, they just, they just uh, shift um, production, I mean, supply, right, and production for international markets. It's already more than half of pistachios that are, that are grown in, in America are exported anyway. So they just shift more of that internationally. And maybe there'd be a slight, you know, decrease in, 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 in profits and, fr- and, and revenue from exports because, you know, there'd be a, more pistachios suddenly on the market. But it wouldn't be... Uh, catastrophic, and it wouldn't be enough to stop the industry, for sure. Not at all. You also write about this kind of stealth privatization. You write how, uh, with your support, with people who support Kickstarter, uh, through Kickstarter, the Pistachio Wars movie, you, with your support, Pistachio Wars will expose the stealth privatization of California's water. Water is a public resource. Even in the state's constitution, it says it is a public resource. So, the stealth privatization that the Resnicks were involved in. Was it legal? Was it fair? Was it democratic? No, it wasn't democratic. Uh, was it fair? Well, I mean, it was fair when you, when you, if you think that, you know, using power and economic power and political power to grab whatever you want is fair, then it was fair. Um, it wasn't illegal. I mean, it's, you know, on, at least on paper, everything was, is done legally. And I think to explain this idea of stealth privatization, I think we have to kind of go a little bit backwards and back in time. Because although there, is, there aren't, you know, it wasn't like some company came to California, like Bechtel uh, came to um, Bolivia and so suddenly just, you know, grabbed a water supply and privatized it outright, and kind of, you know, in this kind of brazen uh, water heist. Water privatization in California is a de facto reality because um, water rights are controlled by a patchwork of um, what, oh, people who own land and own access to, uh, you know, either it's river frontage or, 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 um, or um, underground aquifers, underground water supplies. And so these, um, the access to water is controlled by, mostly by giant companies. And that has been sort of the history of California in, in throughout California's history, that's been the case. And so California's water, water has almost always been privatized. Right, it's always been the control of it has been privatized. Not necessarily the asset itself, because water is a very strange kind of resource. Right, it flows through rivers. It's underground. It's sometimes replenished by, um, you know, in aquifers. And so, it's it's um, 
it's a strange kind of resource that is replenished, right? And so it's all about being able to siphon off and draw off um, that water as it goes through, or if you're sitting on top of it. Um, and so that control has been um, in the hands of uh, powerful agribusinesses, going back to, you know, going back to essentially to uh, the gold rush, um, to, to, to when California was settled um, and um, became an American territory. Uh, and, and so, and right now what's going on is that uh, there's a new push to privatize another chunk of um, California's water supply, a river estuary um, that's fed by the two largest rivers in the state and that actually feeds into the San Francisco Bay. It's called the San Francisco Bay Delta. And right now there's a push by uh, these Beverly Hills billionaires, Stuart and Linda Resnick, and other agribusiness interests that um, farm in the driest part of the state, in the driest part of the Central Valley, which is the southern part of the Central Valley. Uh, there's a push by them to build these giant tunnels that draw off water from these two rivers and 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 bring it to them to to the to their to their plantations hundreds of miles away through a network of um, government funded and government run aqueducts and so there's a new stealth privatization of water w- that we're talking about here with this documentary um that is about not owning the water, right? Not owning the drops of water, but owning um, the uh, access to that water and the ability to siphon it off before it, before it flows out into the ocean and before it sort of sustains this uh, ecosystem, this uh, estuary ecosystem that's on the verge of total collapse. I mean, it's pretty much all, almost collapsed already. But you know, if they draw that water out, that ecosystem will you know be wiped out, and I don't think it'll ever <clears throat> excuse me, it'll ever come back. And so. Water privatization is about controlling access to water, and that access is controlled by billionaires and really, really powerful agribusinesses in California. Is this facing growing opposition today now that people are have a greater understanding of privatization? Are things like these water banks that you talk about and uh, paper water, this kind of financialization of water, are those things being challenged, being opposed by uh, California voters or activists? Yeah, I mean, there are some great organizations and that have great activists that are trying to call attention to this. Uh, organizations like Food and, Wa- Food and Water Watch. Um, but, they, um, but they are having limited success. You know, they there might they might make a splash in the news with some kind of action, but really on a bigger level, there's really no awareness uh, about this. You know, because I think we've been trained, you know, as as people who live in cities um, in this kind of modern world, we've been trained to just turn on the faucet and things come out of it, right? We don't think about the infrastructure and sort of the the resource extraction that 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 really pleasant and amazing system it depends on, right? So we think water just sort of magically comes out of um, the, the pipes, just like, you know, water and, 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 and our waste disappears into the pipes magically as well and goes somewhere we don't even want to know with. And so there is this total ignorance and, um, about what that is built on. Uh, and so, no, there, there's almost been no real public attention focused on this. Um, it's such a fringe issue. Generally, water is very complicated. Um, it's a very complicated issue. 
or the way that it's been described to people is very complicated. So there isn't like a simple way of, 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 of grasping what's going on um, so far. And so people are not really paying attention. But, you know, it's, it's you know, without water, there is nothing, right? Especially in a place like California that is a semi-arid um, env- ecosystem where it doesn't rain throughout the year like it does on the East Coast. It only rains uh, seasonally. And so for most of the year, you don't have water. And so, and the water is mostly supplied through snow melt that comes off the mountain in the spring. And so there's this kind of reservoir of water in the mountains that collects in, uh, during the winter. And then throughout the year, as the snow melts, uh, these rivers fill up and carry the water down to the coast. And while that's happening, right, that water is being extracted. Um, and, and, and so, and, and so the entire um, you know, civilization of California is built on this kind of amazing aqueduct system that uh, very few people even know exists, or they, they see a canal that they drive by it on the freeway somewhere, but they don't really understand that it's this statewide uh, infrastructure um, that's built by the federal government and the, and the state government uh, and completely financed by taxpayers. And it brings water from these mountains and from um, these rivers that are far, far away from major cities and, 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 and the major sort of farm holdings of these big corporations. And it brings them that water from there to them. And so there is this vast system of public works uh, that sustains California, whether it's cities or, or farms. And uh, that system is controlled almost entirely politically controlled by these big agribusinesses. And, 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 and no one knows about that. And no one, no one even has a clue about that, really. And it's kind of surprising, to be honest. Yeah, and I just want to make sure that people know a couple of things. One is that this movie is based on a series of articles that were posted uh, originally at Mark Ames' old website. What was it called? NFSW? I can't remember anymore. Uh, not Safe for Work Corporation. There you go, yeah. NSFW.corp. Uh, and then it was repo- that was in 2013. Later was reposted at Pando in 2015. The name of it, name of it is a journey through Oligarch Valley. So if you want to know more about past- pistachio wars, you can go find that article online. Again, a journey through Oligarch Valley. It was a series of articles that were really fascinating, and I have like 50 questions written down about that art those articles. <laughs> but unfortunately, we are not going to be able to get to them today. One last question for you, Yasha, and make sure you go to yasha11.com to find out more about his movie Pistachio Wars. He's got a Kickstarter going now. It's not going to last for long. There's a whole bunch of different levels of contributions that you can make and a whole bunch of different gifts and award rewards you will get for donating and uh, helping out Yasha with his new movie Pistachio Wars which promises to be a groundbreaking documentary about Beverly Hills billionaires marketing madness, water pr- privatization and yes, War with Iran. Again, go to yasha11.com to find out more about that. One last question for you, Yasha, and it's the question from hell, as always. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The first time you appeared on our show in April 2017, we were talking with you about another article in The Baffler that you have written, and it was called From Russia with Panic, Cozy Bears, Unsourced Hacks, and a Silicon Valley shakedown. In that April 2017 article, you questioned reports that were being made of Russia hacking the D.C. In that article, you wrote, as allegations of Russian responsibility for the DNC hack flew fast and furious, we learned that the FBI never actually carried out an independent investigation of the claims. Instead, agency officials carelessly signed off on the findings of CrowdStrike, which is a 
private cybersecurity firm retained by the Democratic National Committee. So I could go on, but since then, people have made plea bargains, turned states' evidence, been indicted, been convicted, sentenced to jail, including the Russian spy who had infiltrated the NRA and the Republican Party. Do you have any reservations that Russia hacked the 2016 presidential election, and that hacking is why we have a President Trump? <laughs> uh, I still stand by what I wrote in that article, uh, 100%. Because if you remember, um, that article was just um, tried to um, bring in some historical perspective in how um, allegations of, um, of attack right, and cyber attack are used for political purposes and are, and are twisted even if there's some reality to them, right? Even if there's some reality to these attacks, they're always twisted for political gain. And that, has still, that is still true today um, because um, a lot of the stuff that we're, we're talking about, the, the, the evidence of cyber attacks and hacking, I mean, there's been a lot of indictments. Um, there's been a lot of prosecutorial sort of statements and, and, and narratives put out uh, about what happened, but there, we haven't seen really the evidence or there hasn't been a public um, Process in which uh, we, as as, as you know, uh, Americans and and voters, are, are given access to the intelligence behind this stuff because we're told that Russia influenced the election. That essentially Russia, Vladimir Putin, installed Donald Trump in power, right? And if this is uh, if this is an extraordinary situation, uh, we have a foreign agent as as the head of our of, of state, and meanwhile. We don't really, as, 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 as people who voted against him, as people who voted for him, right, uh, as American citizens, we have a right to, to see what, what that decision is, is, is made on and what the, what the evidence is behind. And there hasn't been any of that. There's been a lot of, um, been a lot of yeah, there's been a lot of um, uh, allegations made, and some of them may be true. Um, and so, you know, I stand by that statement. And, and, and you know, the fact is that the matter is this: meddling happens, right? Um, states meddle in each other's affairs. This is just a, you know, 101 of uh, geopolitics, 101 of statecraft. And uh, the bigger the state, the more powerful the state, the more it meddles in um, the affairs of other states. Uh, has, did Russia meddle in uh, American elections? Uh, probably. It'd be weird if it didn't meddle, because every state meddles in um, the affairs of other states in which it has an interest, right? And so, but whether or not that meddling um, rose to the to the level of an attack, or right, that could be considered a, an, a, an act of war, whether that meddling actually had any effect on the vote, and actually had an effect on voting in Donald Trump and putting him in power, um, that is where. Um, I um, grow very skeptical, right? Yasha, I really appreciate you being back on our show. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice. Investigative journalist Yasha Levin has been working on a new movie, Pistachio Wars, and you can show your support for Yasha and his work by participating in his Kickstarter for that movie. Find out more by going to yashalevin.com. Thank you so much for being back on the show, Yasha, and you know I'm going to be annoying you all next year to be back on the show. Thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And uh, happy holidays. Thank you. You too. All right. This is hell where we put people before profits. Turns out to be a horrible business model. 
We already had a very difficult topic on this week's show, rape. That's a pretty tough topic to top when it comes to something people really don't want to talk about, but they definitely should. We'll try to outdo ourselves with discomfort when we have another intense conversation, this one with psychologist and award-winning science writer Jesse Baring, author of Suicidal why we kill ourselves. Speaking of our favorite business model, or our horrible business model, wow, where we stupidly put people before profits. On Patreon this week, I couldn't stop eulogizing the death of President George H.W. Bush. Uh, and I just can't stop doing it in a very uncomplimentary way. But I did that two weeks ago, so this week I expanded my target, and instead of only focusing on the horrors dead Bush inflicted on this planet, I eulogized the entire greatest generation, which, frankly, I think is the worst. We then shared our latest installment of the ongoing Patreon-only series and oral history of the Iraq Wars that happened here live on This Is Hell. This time we featured a really intense interview with two, from 2006 with Ben Griffin, an elite British SAS soldier, which is like a British version of the SEALs here in the States, who refused to continue fighting in Iraq, leaving the army over what he called illegal tactics by U.S. troops and the general policies of all coalition forces. Uh, ben told commanders that he thought the Iraq war was illegal and said he had witnessed dozens of illegal acts by U.S. troops claiming U.S. troops viewed all Iraqis as untermenschen, the Nazi term for races regarded as subhuman. But you can only hear that interview with Ben and uh, my eulogy of the entire greatest generation, which was the worst generation, and another 100-plus Patreon podcasts we have done already, each featuring a new monologue from me in a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online, by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishealth. Special thanks this week for joining us on Patreon goes to Napoleon, Tim, Dan, Dave, Mark, and David. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 312 subscribers to our Patreon podcast. I did a little math this week to try to figure out exactly how many people we need to make this sustainable. It's 3,982, so that means we need 3,670 more. That's it. We're just a little bit short of our goal, and you can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. On next week's Patreon podcast, I don't know. I don't know. But you can only hear next week's uh Patreon podcast and over a hundred other exclusive Patreon podcasts by subscribing at uh, patreon.com slash this is hell. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? All replies read on air right now. The winner of this week's question from hell will get a copy of the next uh, guest's book, and that's Jesse Baring's Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Again, the question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? Leave your response right now, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You still might get a shot at winning Jesse's book. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... I do. Alex um, Leo, look at that. What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Stephen D. says... You suck. <laughs> Stephen P. says, you are effed. 
Aaron D says, you are gullible. <laughs> Zach E says, this is not a public mural. Andrea J, actually, you are ugly AF. <laughs> Eric T says, got milk. Stephen S says, you are cog. <laughs> Daniel N says, we lied. Jeff C says, now comply. Chris S says, psych. Jason F says, post hog. Uh, Fabio L says, asterisk, your, Y-O-U-R. <laughs> GM says, but it isn't enough. <laughs> Paul E says, cut the crap. <laughs> Roman K says, you were beautiful. John W says, now back to work. <laughs> Max I says, war is peace. Jeremy A says, you're human capital. The question from Al is, again, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us you are beautiful? Keep going. Karen C. says, beauty isn't everything. Sarah M. says, drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Nicholas S. says, eat the rich. <laughs> Austin H. says, beauty is a construct. Lisa L. says, are you done? Misha D. says, A. I'm a sign. I don't know you. And B. <laughs> duck! <laughs> Mike M. says... 40s is the new 80. <laughs> Eric T. says, you're going to die. This week's question from hell is, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Mara H. says, do less, buy less. <laughs> Rosalind B. says, Google Kevin Smith huge jorts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Je- Jessica B. says, smell you later, suckers. <laughs> Justin T. says, you were beautiful. Clarence E. says, Rules and restrictions may apply, and not a legally binding statement. <laughs> Tobias M., have you gotten enough for a cab fare? I've got, I've got to be up real early in the morning. Uh, Mike M. says, cancer cures life. <laughs> and, <laughs> Angela, Angela M. says, you didn't believe that, did you? Uh, Jeff D., our friend, says, you're inadequate. Buy more stuff. <laughs> David S. says, if I see you have a beautiful body... Will you hold it against oh, good me? Lord. Uh, Marie K says, brush your teeth twice a day or overthrow the establishment. <laughs> Jacob P, they'll turn digital and it'll be an Amazon, Google, Johnson & Johnson branded screen singing Moana's You're Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we are beautiful? Nick A says, conform, obey, stay asleep. <laughs> Dylan V, this concerns you. Uh, Fergus F. says, the same thing Chuck will say when this is no longer hell. <laughs> Ronaldo M. says, you're still looking pretty good for your age. <laughs> Scott S. says, public mural? Those are gone. I'm not PayPaling the 15 bucks to view the private mural. <laughs> Jesse W., you're just like your mother. <laughs> Gorilla G., and your shoes untied. <laughs> Court H., you are filled with pee-pee and rage. <laughs> Uh, Lee C. says, The sign will peer deeply into the soul of each and every passerby using a system of cameras and wireless sensors to tell each person exactly what their heart desires. That's a little too accurate. So they can get back to work at maximum efficiency. (laughs) What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Conrad E. says, Fallout shelters. Cheap. (laughs) John T. says, Buy our products. And then it's a link to the uh, shop of You Are Beautiful. (laughs) Nice. Peter B. says, this will soon be underwater. Ramsey B. says, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Twin Ports Democratic Socialists of America (laughs) says, 
We are beautiful comrades. <laughs> Steve K says, consume, conform, obey. Laddie O says, they will softly whisper, Diego Rivera, Di- Diego Rivera, Diego Rivera. <laughs> Lisa B, you'd be so beautiful if you just stopped slouching and put on a dress. <laughs> Chandler H says, take a one-way trip to Mars, give indentured servitude a try. What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Dennis H. says, they won't say anything. They will try to grab you by the, well, you know. <laughs> Killiam W. says, you don't notice me anymore. Lucy W. <laughs> says, tenderize and marinate the rich. <laughs> Mike A., just kidding. Andrew T., how much for a hand, Jay? <laughs> Sarah H. says, your rent is about to go up. <laughs> Lucy W. says, you'd be surprised how good you look in neon yellow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vigard H says you're drunk Chuck go home <laughs> JTL says great I created a bunch of narcissists <laughs> what will public murals tell Who us said that? oh uh, JTL okay. what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful Christine M says that beauty is really a capitalist construct Jintaras <laughs> D says now give me the now give me the effing money. <laughs> Anthony P says, interesting that you'd assume public murals will still be permissible once Nabisco owns all property. They're going to put Banksy down like a dog on live television <laughs> as a warning to others. Ryan K says, You are beautiful, but I don't want to ruin our friendship. Please don't make this weird. Evan D says, Your mother and I feel you have really failed to live up to your potential. <laughs> Thomas K. says, your blood is beautiful, as well as a great lubricant for the wheels of capitalism. (laughs) Nathaniel R. says, oh, I see how it is. Too good to talk to me? (laughs) Sebastian M. says, now buy this commodity and ignore the theft of your surplus labor value. (laughs) Joseph D. says, your avatar is beautiful. What will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Jeremy T. says, you're paying for the cab fare home, right? Camilla P. says, you are exploited by the capitalist class. (laughs) Morel C says, but you'd be stunning if you lost 10 pounds. Nathaniel T says, facial recognition software will allow digital murals of variegated, bland, inspirational falsehoods tailored to your credit score. (laughs) Chucks will say something like, you are employable. (laughs) (laughs) Wally R says, buy Brondo, the thirst mutilator. (laughs) Uh, Bruce Bruce S says, not. Zed L says, (laughs) Everybody's stupid. <laughs> Everybody's stupid. <laughs> Chris S. says, why are millennials so vain? And that's everything. Uh, yeah, my response to the question from hell, what will public murals tell us once they're done telling us we're beautiful? Fred got it right. Um, that's ZL. That's Mr. Fred Lonberg. Home. Lonberg. Um, everybody's stupid. That's exactly what the sign is going to say, and it's exactly what the sign should say the winner is going to be Austin because he his response beauty is a construct is absolutely spectacular and references back to the you are beautiful sign so Austin you're the winner of Jesse Baring's book suicidal which we'll be talking to Jesse about in just a minute this is hell is hosting our third annual holiday office party Wednesday December 19th all night long at Carrie's lounge uh, there's going to be this year's office party is going to be special. Not only will the three-legged tacos food truck be stationed out front, but inside carries there's going to be Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietor Stout on tap, as well as the 2017 Founders. 
Kentucky Bourbon Stout. Again, both on tap, plus the 2017 Bourbon County Stout in bottles as well. If your work doesn't have an office party or your work doesn't have an office, or you don't want to party with most of the people who work at your office, bring the co-workers you actually like to our annual This Is Hell holiday office party, Wednesday, December 19. That's this Wednesday. All evening long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Time to announce three more of our favorite 18 books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list at thisishell.com right now. Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore by Elizabeth Rush. An amazing book on the rising sea level rise uh, sea levels and the impact it's not having only on the uh, uh, people who live on the shorelines, but in within the interior of nations as well. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Haider, where Assad argues that the idea that we have of identity politics is something that is skewed, that is not from the original intent, and has led to our mistaken ideas about identity politics. Again, that's Mistaken Identity by Assad Haider. And finally, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers, and The Struggle for Equality by Anna Lisa Cox, which is a stunning book about how back in the 1700s in the areas that would become uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, they were settled by black farmers who dominated the Great Lakes region farming scene for a long time until early in the 20th century. So what happened to all those black farmers? Well, you'll have to read Annalisa's book to find out, but I can tell you It's not a happy story. We'll have more of the best books featured on This Is Hell in 2018 after our next guest. But for now, you can find the entire list with links at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a potentially even more difficult conversation than the one we had earlier on rape. This one will be on suicide. During a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin sees the glasses entirely full. Like I said, more favorite books listed in a little bit. We'll also tell you or thank some of our listeners for supporting This Is Hell. Thank others for sharing This Is Hell and tell you what's happening on upcoming broadcasts of our show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, which that's a really weird tagline to read right before we're going to have an in-depth discussion on suicide. Here to help us discuss a very difficult and uncomfortable topic, psychologist and award-winning science writer Jesse Baring is author of Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Welcome to This is Hell, Jesse. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Great. Jesse is a research psychologist and director of the Center for Science Communication at the University of Otago in Dundee, New Zealand. You can find out more about Jesse at jessebering, B-E-R-I-N-G dot com. And you can follow him on Twitter at jessebering. You begin by quoting a 1621 poem by Robert Burton, which goes, And so far forth death's terror doth affright, he makes away himself and hates the light. To make an end of fear and grief of heart, he voluntarily dies to erase or to ease his smart. To what extent are fear and grief the prevailing dominant reasons for suicide? So, uh, can can we can we become can we have suicidal thoughts even from just one emotion? Does it take a combination of both grief and fear, or a combination of bad feelings to create uh, suicidal thoughts? 
Well, it's an incredibly complicated question, actually. Um, as you can imagine, there's quite a, um, a complex alchemy that goes into suicidal thinking. I don't think it's just, it could just boil down to one particular emotion. Um, negative affect, which is sort of just really potent, disturbing, dark thoughts, uh, I would say, by and large, um, would be a common denominator for most suicidal thinking. I believe, um, and the argument that I try to make in the book is that uh, a particular emotion, which is shame, um, is one of the most prominent forces behind um, suicidality. And that came up in our conversation today earlier about rape and the inability for people to come forward about rape because of the shame that so many people have when it comes to rape. I asked this to our earlier guest. Do you think that there is some sort of connection between our inability to talk about rape and our inability to talk about suicide? I would imagine two very light topics, of course. Um, these are really, you know, challenging issues. And I think that, you know, the attribution of responsibility or blame, um, guilt, this feeling of being tainted socially uh, would play a role, absolutely, um, in terms of um, somebody trying to avoid the topic, you know, um, not not disclose what's happened to them, um, you know, the resistance to seek therapeutic help, um, this this feeling of personal responsibility. And, you know, in terms of shame, this is, you know, where, where I think suicide is a very human phenomenon, because what is required for suicidal thinking is the sort of negative uh, sense that the self is being evaluated by others. Um, we're the focus of somebody else's attention, and we want to escape. We want to somehow um, dig ourselves into a lair and hide from the world. Um, and there are only a couple of ways to to escape the self. You know, um, one is uh, some sort of um, well, well, one is chronic sleeping. One is drugs or alcohol. And the other, unfortunately, is death. That would be the sort of most extreme action uh, to escape the self. But all of this, I think, is due to this um, need to get away from uh, the scrutiny of others and ourselves, sort of turning the, the lens or the sort of the focus of our attention on uh, something that we are ashamed of or something that is negative. You write globally a million people a year kill themselves, and many times that number try to do so. That's probably a hugely conservative estimate, too. For reasons such as stigma and prohibitive insurance claims, suicides and attempts are notoriously underreported when it comes to the official statistics. So how much systemically are we, institutionally, are we set up to have a system that is a barrier, that is a barricade to us coming forward about suicide, to understanding suicide better? Does our system make that more and more difficult? Well, I think at the heart of it is this sort of you know controversy between whether suicidality, suicidal thinking, is inherently a, a sign of pathology or mental illness, or whether it is actually more normal 
um, a human phenomenon than we have assumed. At the moment, uh, because of the sort of over-medicalization of suicidal thinking, it is intrinsically a sign of mental illness. And I think that's actually um, a mistake because, uh, because, you know, a lot of people who are um, depressed or suffering from anxiety and they have fleeting bouts of suicidality don't necessarily identify as being mentally ill. That's such a, a loaded sociological construct um, that what it does is basically marginalize um, a vast majority of people who have suicidal thoughts. Um, my position is that it's actually much more common, more normal, a human psychological response um, than is oftentimes uh, conveyed. So as long as it remains in this sort of domain of uh, mental illness and taboo, um, we're, we're going to find this sort of systemic uh, institutionalization of um, people who are experiencing this, and they're going to go, go to ground and not share their doomsday thoughts with others. How much are we in denial about suicide? I think um, quite significantly. I think, you know, a lot of people actually who have, you know, that, that, that have attempted suicide that fortunately haven't um, completed the act look back and say that, you know, if somebody were to ask me at the time if I were suicidal, I would have definitely said no because I didn't identify as a suicidal person. That was an exotic construct. That's something that happens to these, you know, these really sort of mentally ill, disturbed people. Um, so if people who are genuinely suicidal don't even see themselves as suicidal, um, clearly there's something wrong. Yeah, and I, I just want to get back to something that you said because I know that I'm going to get uh, emails about this. Why is suicide, and if you already uh, covered this, I'm sorry, but why, I'm just, because uh, I kind of want to repeat this for our audience's sake, why is suicide not always the result of mental illness? Because that is the way that we view it, as you were pointing out earlier. Well, I I wouldn't necessarily it's not say that it's not the result of mental illness. What I'm saying is that um, for a lot of us who suffer from depression and anxiety, we don't see ourselves as being mentally ill. Um, technically, we probably, you know, we are. I mean, I, I write from a firsthand perspective in this book. Um, I've definitely experienced bouts of fairly significant depression and suffer from social anxiety. I've been medicated for many years. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think that I've ever stopped to identify or label myself as a mentally ill person because it's such a um, uh, a loaded, emotionally fraught term that, that many of us try to avoid. So um, as a consequence of that, um, there are a lot of people that just simply don't identify with that mentally ill camp uh, that nevertheless are at risk of suicide. I got you. Uh, why do you believe, because you mentioned this in your book as well, that there's a suicidal person inside all of us? Why do you believe there is a suicidal person in all of us. And what would you say to someone who denied ever having any suicidal thoughts? Well, I think that there certainly are people that probably have never had any genuine suicidal thoughts, but that just simply means that they haven't been in the right social 
situations to engender that type of thinking. That doesn't necessarily mean that they um, don't have the capacity to lapse into a suicidal state of mind. Um, so, you know, again, this goes back to this question of whether suicidality is actually inherent to the human condition if you push the right buttons. And perhaps there's even an evolutionary explanation um, for why we w would want to remove ourselves from the population. Um, or whether it is genuinely sort of a, a psychopathological state, that it's abnormal, that it's reflective of something deeply flawed in terms of the individual. Um, the, the point that I try to make is that it is um, a normal human response to a certain set of social conditions. There are individual differences. Some people might be much more susceptible to um, becoming suicidal than others. In fact, we know that there are genetic influences uh, in, in terms of what, what would make somebody um, more prone to thinking of ending their life. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not inherent to the human condition. So social conditions can lead to suicidal thoughts, if not actually the uh, action of suicide. And where you have this global crisis of suicide, if that's the case, then why aren't we challenging the social conditions that we believe create suicide? Are, are we in denial about the fact that uh, it's the social conditions that create the suicide and we just, you know, hold the blame and shame ourselves? Well, because I think it's easier said than done to change the social conditions. I think, you know, suicide has been um, a core part of the human condition um, since, uh, you know, recorded writings. I talk in the book about, you know, one of the earliest suicide notes was on a papyrus scroll in ancient Egypt, um, where the person is talking about, you know, their name being, you know, their name basically um, being mud and their the sort of the stench of carrion um, that that is attached to it, and it is just simply an artifact, unfortunately, of the way that our brains have evolved to be the focus of other people's attention. And because we are so preoccupied with other people, and particularly um, with the negative attributes of other people, that when we find ourselves um, subjective to scrutiny, uh, and we see that as you know, our, our we see ourselves as somehow being irredeemable. Um, then we fall into the suicidal state of mind. You are in the wake of uh, Anthony Bourdain's suicide. The New York Times and other media outlets were discussing the proper way to uh, report on suicide with some criticism saying the phrase commit suicide is problematic. In June, in the wake of Bourdain's death, CNN quoted Desiree Stage, a suicide awareness activist who was, who was trained in crisis intervention, saying to commit suicide implies sin or crime and pathologizes those affected. We suggest more objective phrasing like died by or from suicide, ended their life or took their life. If we're using the right language, if we're pulling negative connotations from the language, Talking about suicide may be easier. To what degree does our language around suicide either mislead us about suicide or worse, even lead to the potential for more suicides? Well, I don't know if I entirely agree with that. I mean, it's, it seems like a very um, um, sort of politically correct type of discourse in terms of refraining from certain um, vernacular or wording when it comes to talking about suicide. I, I do agree that that commit suicide 
has this sort of implicit association with crime. You know, you commit a crime, you commit suicide, you commit murder, and so on. On the other hand, um, it's I think that if we place too much um, onus on the individual for how they talk about suicide, it could be even more off-putting. You know, it's already difficult enough and awkward enough to talk about the subject of suicide because you're afraid of offending somebody else. But if, you know, on top of everything, we've got to worry about the choice of words that we use, um, it runs the risk, I think, of making it even more taboo or um, even more um, unlikely to be discussed openly. You know, a friend of mine, his father died by suicide uh, um, about a year ago, and he shared with me this this terrible fact. He said, you know, my, my father, um, I don't know if you know this, Jesse, but my father um, committed suicide. Yeah, he, hanged, he hung himself in the garage. If I were to stop and suddenly say, you know, actually, I don't think you should be using the word commit suicide um, or to say, you know, in fact, it's act- it, the correct terminology is, is hanged and not hung. You know, it just seems very strange to me that that's what we are focusing on in terms of changing um, people's perceptions of the problem of suicide. I, I'm sympathetic to it. I understand people's um, sensitivities around words, but um, you know that's not going to fix the problem. And you're right that committed suicide also pollutes the reputation of the dead as it re, uh, presupposes the individual's failure to rein in the responsible defects of their character such as selfishness, a violent nature, or cowardice. If suicide isn't the result of the individual's failure to rein in the responsible defects of their uh, character, such as selfishness, violent nature, or cowardice, then what's the cause of the person killing themselves? Is it that it's not the individual's failure that suicide was committed, but all of our failure? Well, I think ultimately, yeah, from a philosophical a philosophical perspective, I think that suicide is an indictment on society. It failed the individual, therefore it's reflective of something fundamentally problematic about the way that we treat people in society. Um, however, I don't think you know placing blame on the individual or society is necessarily the um, the way to look at this. Being suicidal is a is a, it's an altered state of consciousness. Our decision making is compromised. Um, and distorted, much like being under the influence of some sort of drug when we are in this sort of genuinely suicidal state. We are just not thinking clearly um, in terms of the likelihood of whatever problem it is that we're facing somehow being resolved in the future. We are myopically focused on the present. It's inherently um, painful. Uh, Our perception of time is impaired. The passage of time, it basically feels like you're acutely bored and time just is dripping by very slowly. Um, it's, excruci- it's excruciating to being in the, the, the state of um, suicidality. The important thing, I think, to get across uh, you know, to your listeners is that that feeling of just tremendous doom and gloom typically um, elapses in about 24 hours. So that feeling, that urgent need to die right now will um, go away in about 24 hours. It doesn't necessarily mean that all your problems will be solved and you're going to be happy in 24 hours, but that urgent need to die right now um, uh, doesn't usually last longer than 24 hours. 
you write about people lacking or at least uh, having the perception that they lack value in their life and then trying to find value in their life. But that lack of value uh, leading to suicidal thoughts when I was at my lowest uh, in that kind of position. I was trying to figure out how I can get value into my life. I went back to college. I still wasn't very happy, and I didn't really, you know, get over that real sense of, you know, suicidal thoughts until I started doing this radio show. How much does that attempt at finding value, how much can that cure your suicidal thoughts, and how much does it just kind of blanket over them so they're just waiting there for the next problem with your precarity in your life to come to pass? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that value comes from our feeling like we have a place in society and other people's valuation of us. So if we feel like we are contributing to society, we feel like we somehow have a, a purpose that others value, that's what gives us um, individually our perception of, um, you know, feeling like we deserve to be here. This our, our self-esteem is is literally the product of other people's um, opinions of us. I mean, it's very easy to say that, oh, I don't care what other people think about me. You know, you hear that refrain quite a lot, actually, and somehow that's seen as being, um, you know, the ideal sort of uh, perspective to take that, you know, you're... Uh, um, you're immune to other people's thoughts or some something along those lines, but that's just a that's a cliche. It doesn't really work that way. In reality, um, we are um, deeply dependent on others valuing us. So you know, I think that you know, you having a radio show, for instance, I think that gives your life value because other people are appreciating the contributions that you're making to society. And that is factoring into your self-esteem and so on. You also write about the right to be unhappy. So, you know, it's something that you would think about when you're depressed. You're like, maybe I shouldn't, I don't even have the right to be unhappy. I have a very privileged life compared to other people in the world. I don't even have the right to be unhappy, which leads to more unhappiness. what does that cycle of unhappiness, that constantly feeding into itself cycle of unhappiness, what does that reveal to us about the kind of about what leads to suicidal thinking? Well, um, I think a lot of people are surprised that peop- that individuals who are in the worst social conditions, oftentimes in terms of um, uh, their their living conditions, at least, you know, people that are that are growing up um, or have lived their entire lives in extreme poverty, for instance, they are actually not at especially high risk of suicide. It's the person that has had a relatively privileged life and then all of a sudden loses that privilege. Um, so they've had money and then they lose money suddenly. So that's sort of this really sort of precipitous fall. Um, from high status to low status that makes you most at risk uh, because it's discombobulating. They don't, they don't really um, feel like they have the value that they once had. Uh, and it's the same for somebody who's been single their whole life, for instance. Um, they're people who have never been um, uh, in a, a meaningful long-term relationship are not necessarily at, at high risk of suicide. It's the people that are, um, you know, just experiencing a separation or going through a divorce 
that um, that that contrast between their previous state, um, where they plummet in terms of their social identity and their status and what's familiar to them, uh, that's what puts them at risk. Or, or being imprisoned, um, it's that first first month of imprisonment or being in jail where you're most at risk, that sort of transition from freedom to um, imprisonment. Same thing with being institutionalized in a, um, uh, into, in a mental asylum. It's that, that period of transition. So it's, it's not necessarily a matter of um, how good you have it in life. It's a matter of what you've lost that puts one at a special risk of suicide. And I think that what, what that tells us is that uh, we really are, are, are dependent on um, our happiness. Our self-esteem is dependent on whether people, what other people think about us. And um, if we're accustomed to people thinking of us in a certain way, then losing that identity is, um, is going to be uh, disastrous for a lot of people. So if life changes and transitions can lead to suicidal thoughts, which may lead to suicide, uh, there are those, and we've had plenty of them on our show, who are critical of neoliberalism because it leads to more instability and security and precarity in your life. Does that mean that then today we are seeing, due to neoliberalism, due to the changes in our economic and political thinking, a rise in suicides? Um. I think as a sociological phenomenon, that's certainly possible. Um, you would have to look at the individual cases of suicide, and it's so idiosyncratic. I mean, every case is, is dramatically different. Um, there was an author that I, I cite in the book that says that, um, you know, the causes of suicidal thinking are dizzying in their variety, and I think that's definitely true. You write about the soul-crushing hypocrisy. Let me read the entire quote because it's very interesting. Uh, being finally free to write in a manner that suited me and with my very own soapbox to say the things I'd long wanted to say about society's soul-crushing hypocrisy, it was incredibly appealing. How much do you see that as a reason behind suicide, society's soul-crushing hypocrisy? Um, well, that was a very particular, in a very particular context in the sense that I found myself personally in a situation where I, you know, I was a, an academic, a fairly successful academic for, for many years, and I decided to leave my tenured position at a university to write full-time as a freelance author. Um, and I started writing about things like sex um, and religion and, you know, basically putting it all out there and not having a lot of filter in terms of um, the repercussions of what I was saying. And that, that was very liberating for me to be able to do that. But as a consequence of doing that, um, I burned a lot of bridges because people were uncomfortable with the fact that I was being as blunt and direct and um, shameless, I think, as I actually was. So when I found myself running out of money and needing to get back into academia, I then was struggling because I had already identified myself um, with these fairly unpopular or at least um, uh, very um, direct potentially off-putting um, uh, ideological positions. So um, for me, what that meant is that, uh, yes, um, I felt myself prior to that being in this very restrictive, constraining, um, hypocritical society where people never really said what was on their mind. But once I actually did say that, 
um, I faced problems as a consequence of that. Uh, you also point out how the American or the Australian suicide prevention specialist Susan Beaton asks, "Do we ever say that someone committed cancer, committed health or heart failure, even when they may have lived lifestyles that contributed to such diseases? How is suicide a disease?" Uh, I wouldn't say it is a disease. Actually, um, that's her position. I would say that it is again a a suicidal thinking, at least, is a normal response to a debilitating set of social conditions um, and where the individual feels this excruciatingly potent and disarming awareness of the self um, because they are under the lens um, in terms of others' uh, negative evaluations. And I think that we all are potentially vulnerable to that. So it's this disease model versus this um, naturalistic, evolutionarily adaptive model. And I think we have to unpack that, the latter, uh, because it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, on the surface to say that suicide is adaptive, biologically adaptive, because it kind of goes against the grain of Darwinian thinking to say that, um, you know, which is all about, I think most people just assume it's all about survival of the fittest and so on. But in reality, uh, evolutionary mechanisms work by the, the propagation of your genetic contribution. So if you find yourself in a situation where by remaining alive, um, you are actually compromising your genetic success, um, suicidal thinking does have some, at least according to some theorists, some evolutionary currency. Um, because if you are a burden, a reproductive burden, for instance, to your biological kin. So you're, let's say that you're, um, you know, living in your brother's basement or something, um, and you just can't get your act together. You're, you know, the proverbial sort of loser. And as a consequence of doing that, you're draining resources from your, um, your niece or your nephew. Well, then maybe um, from this sort of cold-hearted heuristic of evolutionary algorithms, if you remove yourself from the population, that will actually shore up um, genetic resources in terms of uh, your relatives' uh, reproductive opportunities. And because of that, some people have claimed that suicide could be an evolutionary adaptation. It's an incredibly complicated, controversial argument um, that I don't believe has been resolved yet. But there is that position out there that it's not necessarily a mental illness, but an evolutionary adaptation. One thing I often hear from survivors of those who committed suicide is that the survivors view it as a selfish act. Is suicide a selfish act? How do we view suicide when we think of it first and foremost as a selfish act? Well, I think it's used, that expression is used as a deterrent primarily for people um, in the sense of the catastrophic harm that their deaths will have on others. I mean, every any given suicide um, has a ripple effect in terms of uh, bereavement and people suffering from that loss. You know, people that you just have even just fleeting everyday associations with, um, not necessarily close friends and family. It can be devastating to um, uh, to, to just your um, you know um, 
people at work or people that you cross on the uh, meet at the store every day. So it, it is it is a selfish act in that sense, but it's not selfish necessarily from the perspective of the person who is um, suicidal. And one of the reasons is because uh, people who are in that altered state of consciousness have um, uh, compromised perspective-taking abilities. They have difficulty um, putting themselves into the shoes of somebody who... Um, would be affected by their death. They are literally cognitively impaired. So it's not a deliberate act of selfishness in that sense. Um, it is this incredibly powerful impulse and desire to end a very painful state of consciousness. We have been speaking with psychologist and award-winning science writer Jesse Baring, author of Suicidal why We Kill Ourselves. Find out more about Jesse at jessebaring, B-E-R-I-N-G dot com. And follow him on Twitter at jessebaring, again, B-E-R-I-N-G. One last question for you, Jesse, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I'm going to hate asking this question. That's the category this one falls in. You write, I possess almost a full complement of traits that make certain types of people more prone to suicide than others. Impulsive, check. Perfectionist, check. Sensitive, shame-prone, mood-disordered, sexual minority, self-blaming. Check, 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 check. Impulsive, perfectionist, sensitive, shame-prone, mood-disordered, sexual minority, self-blaming. I'm six out of seven on those traits. Am I good and safe as long as I don't become a sexual minority. <laughs> it's never too late for that, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for that. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, not necessarily. I think that maybe you're at slightly less risk than me. Um, but um, it's something to be vigilant of. I think that if we see suicide as something that other people do, um, then we are not taking the precautions necessarily necessary to um, protect ourselves from um, the possibility that we can actually find ourselves in this very distressing state. So, you know, part of the, the, the motivation, actually much of the motivation for writing this book was to make people aware um, that we all are potentially suicidal um, but also to be knowledgeable about what's happening to us psychologically if we ever find ourselves in that state. I really appreciate you being on the show, Jesse. This is a fascinating book. Again, we've been speaking with psychologist and award-winning science writer Jesse Baring, author of Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks for having me. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is Hell in a Few Minutes. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and click on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site, again, at thisishell.com when you click on support. Thanks this week goes to Kilter for tithing. Also thanks to Gina, who wants a This Is Hell tote bag. And special thanks to Jan or Jan, not too sure, Thanks to Elizabeth, who writes Merry Unchristmas to Fred Lonberg Home from Beth and Niku. 
Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed now more than ever. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual holiday office party, Wednesday, December 19th, all night long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. This year's office party is going to be special. Not only will the three-legged tacos food truck be stationed out front, but Carrie's will have the Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietors and 2017 Founders Kentucky Bourbon Stout on tap, plus the proprietors in bottles as well. We'll also have This Is How Swag, so if you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift and you know someone who likes or should like This Is Hell, you can get it at the party. If your work doesn't have an office party or your work doesn't have an office or you don't want to party with those jerks from work, bring the coworkers that you actually do like to our annual This Is Hell holiday office party Wednesday, December 19th, that's this Wednesday, all evening long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Time to announce three more of our favorite 18 books featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list right now at thisishell.com. One is on sports, the other is on liberation theology, and the third covers anti-authoritarianism. The first is The Heritage, Black Athletes of Divided America and the Politics of Patriotism by Howard Bryant. There's a heritage among black athletes of being the voice for those within the community that did not make it out, and they all face a kind of McCarthyism, if not McCarthyism itself, that have had devastating impacts on their sports careers. Howard says, in the heritage, with a sports industry now militarized in our post-9-11 world, boosting nationalism several times during each and every game, is it any surprise that Colin Kaepernick can't get a job? In the second book, The World Coming of Age, An Intellectual History of Liberation Theology by Lillian Callis Barger, Liberation Theology challenged the notion that politics and religion existed separately from one another and your beliefs is in one should not affect the beliefs of the other. Lillian talks about the evolution of the liberation theology movement and its impact on movements today, including Black Lives Matter. And finally, the third book in this segment that we are telling you is one of our favorite 18 books of 2018, Resisting Illegitimate Authority by Bruce Levine. Anti-authoritarianism is uh, challenging not all authority, but illegitimate authority. Here in the States, we celebrate that kind of challenging of illegitimate authority in our national myth, but we don't celebrate it in practice. In fact, we criminalize it, even pathologize it, turning anti-authoritarianism into a behavioral disease that needs to be corrected by drugs. To find out more about that, again, read Bruce E. Levine's Resisting Illegitimate Authority. We'll share the final two books of the best featured on This Is Hell in 2018 right after Jeff. Find them all right now at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during a moment of truth, Jeff sees the glass as entirely full. We also want to thank uh, people for sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on next week's final episode of This Is Hell for 2018. Manufacturing Descent since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. I know you do. I'm confident in the fact that you have Jeff. Sorry, this thing's all jacked up. Full. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Y'all remember Leonard Cohn? He was alive not long ago. He wrote many songs, including Hallelujah, 
which has been covered by many singers, including, most famously, the tragically late Jeff Buckley. Leonard sings about a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. I've always wondered why it was secret and not sacred. I've heard there was a sacred chord. See, even sung that way, it still sounds like a secret, so you don't lose that concept. I've heard there was this chord. Oh, it's a rumor, a secret, illicit or elusive knowledge. And what kind of secret is it anyway? It starts like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. What kind of secret is that? He knows every interval in this chord he's only heard about, and it's a secret. How does he know every interval in the secret chord? A chord a baffled king used at least 3,000 years ago. Well, he's a Kabbalist. We know that about Leonard Cohen. He got the knowledge somehow. Ancient Jewish secret, huh? The baffled king composing hallelujah. David, like Leonard, was a songwriter. Why baffled? Well, I've heard there's a secret doctrine, a pretty damn secret, sacred doctrine about King David being insane. Baffled king, mad king, the cosmos and the Lord filled him. He was full of the Lord, and he was insane with his love of God and his openness in song to God. David, in his madness and love, decided he needed to sin in order to help God have a relationship of sin and redemption with him because he was too perfect a servant of God. He was too open to God. He was too full of God, like as if to become one unto God. David was too good. God couldn't handle it. And so David resolved to debase himself with sin and take Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and bed her in a sinful bed so he could sin in the eyes of God and by penance be redeemed by God. God likes that. It makes him feel useful. Talk about creating drama, but that's the kind of relationship they had, God and David, symbiotically dysfunctional. David's 23rd Psalm, you'll remember it if I start, a song of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me, etc., etc., blah, 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 green pastures, blah, 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 still waters, blah, 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 valley of the shadow of death, blah, 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 fear no evil, rod and staff set a table, anoint with oil. My cup runneth over. That's the King James translation. But as they will, scholars went back to the original to double check the King James version, which as turns out is full of errors. The ancient original Hebrew is, my cup is full. Not running over, not overflowing, full. It's sufficient. It's enough. Diana, it's enough. Enough already. Stop. When? Stop pouring. You're getting it all over the tablecloth. It's a good line, my cup runneth over. It's especially good when used as sarcasm. Cratchit, I'm giving you an eight pence Christmas bonus. What do you think of that? Oh. Mr. Scrooge, my cup runneth over. But it's just wrong. My cup is full. I am satisfied. But I'm trying to remember in my own life to be grateful these days. It's something I must constantly remind myself because I was raised to complain about everything. Look around. Remember where you are. All the advantages. Your cup is full. That said, I'm hosting my brother and his son who are coming to stay a couple of nights. And I have beds for them and sheets and pillowcases, but I don't have blankets or a kitchen table, but the blankets. If anyone can spare a couple of warm blankets 
for two nights next week because I'm literally broke. Please hit me up. If I had those, my cup would be full. But my cup is full. I am full. Full of shit. King David was full of shit. The rabbis who came up with their Meshuggah Midrash about Meshuggah King David, King David, full of shit. God is full of shit. Leonard Cohen and his not particularly secret chord, full of shit. It's important to acknowledge when you are in a state of fullness. Knowing you are full of shit keeps you humble. Knowing you are full of grace makes you available to work for others for positive change. Knowing your cup is full keeps you from acting from fear and resentment, like the president, who is the most empty person alive. He's a void, and nature abhors a vacuum, and no one is more abhorred by nature than our president. He's like a black hole. This is why he's turning the nation to shit, because he wants to be full of it. But he never will be full, because he is too great a whole. Now, if we can fill ourselves with the fullnesses and know them, we can aim our self-destructive civilization on a positive trajectory so that maybe we will redeem ourselves and our work in the fullness of time. Amen. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You know, I always forget the amount of blah, blah, blah that's in the uh, Bible, especially when you're doing a close reading of the Bible. Oh, There's a yeah, lot yeah, of blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh my God. God. It's relentless. That's pretty much it. It's one big blah, blah, blah. How you doing, Jeffy? You know, I'm doing all right. Mm. I could use some blankets. And some dough. Oh, some dough would be amazing. All right. You got any? I'm going to buy you an instant lottery ticket, and uh, your, all <laughs> your problems will be solved. I could use a blanket of dough. <laughs> a couple of blankets of dough. Or blankets of And a five-pound box of money. No, a five-pound box of locks is what I want. Ooh, there you go. That's going to cost more than 50 bucks. Yeah, it is. That's going to cost you at least 100 bucks, Jeffy? What? Until next week? Yeah. Stay beautiful. But I got to tell you a story. Oh. I got to tell you a story oh. real quick before I go. All right. All right. Two. All right. I've got two. One is I went to this new restaurant. There's a fancy restaurant in Chicago called Grace. They have a new restaurant up on Sheridan near Devon called uh, Onward. They have a parabolic ceiling, and I don't think it was intentional. <laughs> but if you sit on the opposite wall from another table, like 40 feet away, you can hear that conversation perfectly. That's funny because there, there are many palaces in India. There's an old uh, um, uh, uh, Mughal palace in Hyderabad that you can stand in one little entranceway, and you can be way on the top of the battlements, like 600 yards away. And if someone claps or whispers, you can hear them. Yeah, I remember that from the uh, Detroit Science Center and the Ontario Science Center. Oh, I think yeah, they had it done yeah, at the yeah. science and industry. But it's really hot because I did. I thought these people next to me were having the conversation <laughs> I was hearing. And then I realized it was people on the other side, like 40, 50 feet away from me. And now I want to go on a double date and actually have somebody go sit, have the other date, go sit in the other uh, booth and then have a conversation. Or I would like to write a script that would freak out the people on the other side. The other thing, thing I wanted to tell you about was uh, I'm on Devon. I get out of the office. I step out on the street. And all of a sudden I see this gigantic, I mean, like Tahoe or Yukon or something, huge SUV going down the street. And it's playing this weird music that's very, 
American pop-oriented music, but it, I don't recognize it in any way. And it kind of sounds like children's music in a weird way. And as the truck, as the SUV gets closer, I realize that on the top of it is this gigantic box. And mounted on top of that box is like a huge menorah, like a three-foot-tall menorah. <laughs> and on the box, in script, it says, Happy Hanukkah. And I just, I have no idea what the music was. I think there was some sort of pop religious Jewish music. I don't know. But I saw this and I couldn't help myself because it was awesome. And I burst out laughing, you know, because if that was the same thing and it was, uh, you know, a nativity scene on the top, I would have burst out laughing. And the guy in the SUV flipped me off. (laughs) What a religious guy. (laughs) I was uh, driving down the street to a... To a, uh, I don't remember what I was going to, but um, <laughs> coming the other way was a whole police escort, and then a huge parade of such SUVs and different cars, including classic cars and funny cars and dune buggies, all with menorahs and happy Hanukkah. It was the Hanukkah parade. <laughs> Sweet, that sounds awesome. <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Until next time. All right. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share This Is Hell. We want to thank the people who did share This Is Hell this week. Nick, Derek, Julie, uh, Jan. Let's see, who else do we want to thank? Mike, Anarchimedia, Michael, Mark, uh, Doug, Franciscus, Natan. Thanks to Tom, Astrid, Fergus. Uh, for sharing our uh, show last week. Thanks to Jeffrey, Jesse, Gorilla Gramophonics, Nana, and Support Migrant Justice Asylum Seekers Support Rally in Durango. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to hear your name and help spread the word about This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Time to announce our final two books of our favorite books we featured on This Is Hell in 2018. You can find the entire list at thisishell.com right now. The final two books are A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters by Pavlos Rufos, and Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream by Sarah Churchwell. We all know corrupt Greek society created their economic crisis, and the people of uh, Greece are lucky, lucky to have had the Troika bail them out in order to fix their awful debt problem. So why does Greek still have a debt problem that's far worse than it was before? You can find out when you read Pavlos's book. Again, a happy future is a thing of the past. Finally, the American dream doesn't mean what you think it means. In fact, the meaning of the American dream has long been debated, but no more. And no, it hasn't always been about rags to riches economic success stories. In fact, the American dream was pretty damn socialist for a really long time until recently. Meanwhile, the American Dream's antithesis, America First, is also misunderstood, except by those who are KKK members and Nazis who understand fascist dog whistles. So read Sarah's amazing examination of who we are and what we were in Behold America. Also, there's a lot on Donald Donald Trump's racist dad, Fred. So you'll want to read that. This is Hell is hosting our third annual holiday office party this Wednesday, all night long, at Carrie's Lounge, Wednesday, December 19th. At this year's office party, Three-Legged Tacos food truck will be there. A whole bunch of special beers on tap and in bottles. We'll also have This is Hell swag, so if you need some last-minute holiday gifts. If your work doesn't have an office party or your work doesn't have an office or you don't want to party with the jerks at your work, 
work, bringing the people you like to This Is Hell's Holiday Office Party, Wednesday, December 19th, at all evening long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Don't forget to go to yasha11.com and show your support for his Kickstarter campaign for his movie, Pistachio Wars. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell were uh, Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Hey, Alex, I know I will be telling everyone what we learned over the last six months on This Is Hell, but who do we have confirmed for next week's final show for 2018? Uh, right now, it's just Brian Muir, so I should probably get to work. And, of course, we will have another moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, where the coolest musicians get their news. This is Hell. See you at the annual This is Hell holiday office party this week, again on Wednesday. And see you on patreon.com slash this is hell. And tune in next week for our final episode of This is Hell for 2018. Oh, I got to do this now. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This week, uh, I want to thank our guests for this week's show, including Jesse Baring, who is the author of the book Suicidal. Thanks to investigative journalist Yasha Levin and go support his Kickstarter for his movie Pistachio Wars. Thanks to Nita C. Crawford for her reporting on the costs of war study. Thanks to Sahila Sohaila Abdullali, author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Thanks to journalist Cole Stangler, who reported to us live from Paris on the Yellow Vest Movement. Our uh, hangover cure this week is chlorella. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've learned or that we have taught you or revealed to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. All right, it's you're listening to WNUR 89.3 Chicago Sound Experiment, and it's now time for a classical and beyond.